um, you know, we were just getting set up. So just real quick, I have Richard's um, book pinned to the Jumbotron. So if everybody wants to take a quick moment to bookmark that or place your pre-orders, please do so. Like I've, I was fortunate enough to have a early screening of the book and I think it's very solid. Um, one thing that I really appreciate about Richard is that he um, is that in, in the anti-woke sphere, like, you know, there's a lot of good criticisms of wokeness, you know, but Richard is actually offering some, some viable solutions that I think can help with that. Um, so today, you know, I, I'm having Liberty Cappy help me with co-hosting. Um, our guest is Richard Hanania. Um, you know, the usual co is Josie, the redheaded libertarian. She's a little sick. So if we can drop some kind words for her in the comments, that'll be great. You know, help her feel better. So with that said, let's uh, let's go ahead and get started. Um, Richard, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Thanks thanks for doing this. What, what do I call you here? Do I call you? Yeah, rabbit, rabbit sounds good. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Richard, like, you want me to start this by having you tell us a little bit about yourself, like who you are, like you know what you do, and you know how you got into this uh, into this topic. Yeah, I mean, I got interested in the topic just like sort of looking around at the world, sort of like everyone gets interested in this topic. I mean, wokeness wars are basically uh, the you know the center of our politics. It seems like you know people will make points like, oh, uh, you know, Glenn Greenwald is he right or left? And it seems like people just judge people you know based on their position vis-a-vis wokeness. It does seem like there's sort of just one uh, axis on which like we judge everybody and people who have a different idea they believe in economic redistribution or something else like uh, often decry this uh but i do think there's like an intuitive understanding that this is like fundamentally you know something important you know something important that divides people and makes them conservative and liberals um and you know people's opinions on you know people tend to form tribal identities sort of around that uh so me I, my background is i'm an academic i mean i went to uh law school i uh, uh I studied at the graduate level, like uh, political science. Uh, so I think, you know, you see sort of the background of uh, both fields uh, within the book. And, you know, the ideas that are in the book, they've been floating around in my head, you know, uh, for a while since I was in law school, really, uh, where I just sort of, you know, I took just different classes and all kinds of things, you know, contracts, property. Um, but, you know, there were some in civil rights and some stuff that I would come across in the news. Um, and I was just, you know, surprised the extent to which, um, you know, the things people got mad about actually had a basis in law. And it's almost, you know, people like, you know, people who pay attention to politics or pay attention to discourse for a while, uh, you know, they might, they don't, you know, it, it, they, they get a sense of how things change. So if you've only been, you know, on Twitter or paying attention to politics for a year or two, you know, you, you might, you know, you might not understand this. Um, but like the, you know, so could the idea that like wokeness has something to do with law is almost, you know, almost tried at this, tried at this point, um, at least, you know, for, for highly informed people who are interested in these matters. Um, and, you know, you see some stuff being done at the state level. Uh, but that's, but that wasn't always the case. And I think, you know, I had a essay in 2021, um, you know, Chris Caldwell talked about the Civil Rights Act. He didn't really like give the details of like, beyond the Civil Rights Act, you know, what it was exactly the government did. And I think in 2021, um, it was still the second most read article on my Substack. Uh, it's called uh, uh, Woke Institutions is Just Civil Rights Law. And that, went, you know, that went viral and it became popular uh, because like it was about a topic that people cared about and it gave answers of sort of where the stuff came, came from. And the book is, you know, an extended version of that. It goes deeper into the law. Um, it, you know, deals with some topics that weren't covered in the article at all, like why haven't Republicans done anything? What are sort of the political prospects of doing something about wokeness? Uh, what exactly can you do? Um, and even like, 
you know, sort of deeper things about how society changes the influence of philosophers versus the influence of laws and institutions and, uh, you know, the incentive structure that groups like lawyers and bureaucrats and government officials uh, face. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the sort of the, uh, you know, biographical and sort of intellectual uh, journey behind the book. Yeah, absolutely. And that article you described, like, I'd strongly recommend everyone go to Richard Substack and, and read it. It's a very good primer for the general thesis of the book, which is um, wokeness, you know, it has origins in in laws, right? And it didn't just come out of nowhere. And I think I think one thing that we can do to kind of help ground this discussion early on is kind of define wokeness, right? Like, you know, how do you define wokeness and like what it is? Yeah. So people, I mean, people love this. You know, these discussions, they go through these phases. So there was like a phase where there was like, you know, like a week or two weeks or something where like the media thought they had a gotcha for like every Republican, and you know, every conservative. You know, they would all say uh, they would say, you know, they're against wokeness and they would say define wokeness. And, you know, you could always find somebody who like freezes and doesn't have a good answer. And so like just a few, there were a few of those people like that who like didn't really have a good answer um, in some, you know, TV appearance or some interview. And then that became viral. Oh, nobody knows what wokeness is. It's just this stupid word, you know, that conservatives invented to like attack their enemies. It has no meaning and they don't even know what they're talking about now so you know i'm, I'm cognizant of that the book was out written uh you know before um and the art of the, the original article was were written before uh this controversy but uh, you know i you know as a good you know, per person with a background in social science and the law i know you have to define your terms so i was gonna you know i was inclined to define my terms anyway to make a rigorous argument right um and you know so there's three things and i think this is i think this is a pretty I think it's a pretty neutral definition. Um, I, I don't think, like, I think if there's anyone to, on the left, I don't know if they, you know, I, I don't know if they would necessarily disagree with it. So the first one is disparities are caused by discrimination. You know, certain disparities. We don't care that uh, Asians uh, do better than whites. I mean, we do care that Asians, you know, and Asians have a lower crime rate than whites. Maybe Asians having higher test scores is a problem when they're getting into college. Uh, but, you know, so, so, so some. It's whites and non-whites, right? These, uh, these disparities are... Um, they're caused by discrimination. That could be past present uh, discrimination, or that could be present discrimination. Um, and then you have uh, basically that speech must be restricted uh, in order to overcome that dis overcome that discrimination. Uh, so this is the you know speech codes. It's not just speech codes. It's speech codes specifically on these topics. Um, and men versus women too. Same thing as the uh, you know disparities in the same direction. Disparities where women uh, are doing better than men, like I don't know, you know, arrest rates or suicide rates. No one cares about those. And then, you know, and the third is a bureaucracy uh, that basically enforces these rules. So like when Twitter uh, X, you know, they when Elon Musk came aboard and fired, you know, all the trust and safety people or a lot of the trust and safety people, you know, that really drove the media up the wall of these people who are into identity politics and people we call woke. Uh, same thing, you know, universities, it's really funny when you sort of see these, you know, these protesters on college campuses. It's not the 1960s where they demand like a socialist revolution. Revolution. Now they demand more sensitivity training and hiring. You know, Af you know, African American uh, profess studies professors and like all these other things that are sort of part of the machinery uh, of censorship. So that's it. Disparities cause discrimination. Uh, speech codes uh, to uh, uh, to deal with that fact, and then the bureaucracy to enforce all this. Yeah, I think that's a fairly good definition, and like it overlaps a lot with how I perceive wokeness as well. I think the one thing that you hit upon that sums up a lot of the woke arguments is that there's a conflation that every disparity must be driven by some form of discrimination. And I think, um, and, and, I, and right now I want to circle back to the book itself. Like, you know, so one of the central theses of your book is that wokeness has a few pillars in our law. Um, some of the reoccurring themes that you, that we're focused on are affirmative action, 
disparate impact, harassment law, and Title IX. So for each of these, um, can we get a brief primer on those items? And, and if there's any that I missed, feel free to touch upon those as well. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, this book is like sort of like a simplification of the concept, but it's also sort of complicated. But I'm giving you like a lot of different pillars, but I'm like trying to explain a lot too. So like, I think it's like a, it's like a, it's like a sort of a complicated theory, but it's a simple theory for what it's trying to explain because what it's trying to explain is so big, right? If that makes sense. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that government does and, you know, it, it's the same, you know, we've had these sort of debates since the, really since the late 1960s, early 1970s. Uh, so you have disparate impact. You have the idea that, and you know, there's details about how these things are enforced and such. I go into them in the book. I, I don't have to necessarily go into them here. Um, but there's disparate impact. The idea that you know there's something potentially illegal if you have um, a standard that whites uh, meet at a greater rate than blacks, um, and that could be, uh, you know, that could be a you know a, a criminal statute could have a disparate impact. Um, it could be, you know, it could be uh, uh, a test. And, you know, this is not like, you know, like you're enforcing the law discriminatorily. It, you know, it's just taken prima facie, right? If you have that disparity, uh, there's some kind of discrimination, right? So there's a disparate impact standard where, like, you can't give a test to just hire the best people. Despite the Civil Rights Act, uh, they're putting it in the Civil Rights Act that you actually can do that. Uh, it's pretty explicit and the legislative history is clear on this. Um, you have affirmative action in co contracting. Um, you know, Vivek has brought this a little bit into the... Uh, into the public discourse because, you know, me and him have had discussions about this. And the idea is that basically every, if you have a government contract, that's like a third, you know, a third of the workforce, um, uh, you uh, have to, like, you have to achieve numerical disparities. There's just, a, there's, it's right in the labor department regulations. This is re uh, related to the disparate impact doctrine. Uh, but the idea is that basically if you, you know, you assume that any disparities in between races and sexes, um, yeah, in different kinds of job categories as caused by discrimination. And, you know, you at least have to provide the government with a plan to overcome it. The government doesn't write the plan for you or give you the direct quotas or whatever. And one of the subtle arguments of the book is like, this is actually worse than just the government telling you what to do because it makes you sort of like your own enforcer and your own self-censor and you're the person who has to, um, you, you know, sort of keep track and be this anthropologist and sociologist and, you know, classify, you know, it really just like instill sort of habits and thoughts into managers and, and businesses, uh, you know, people who lead institutions. I have Title IX. I mean, people run into the Title IX stuff. It, this is also the Civil, you know, this is also the Civil Rights Act, but then it's in addition to the Civil Rights Act called, again, Title IX. Um, and, you know, this is, this is really, it, all it says, you know, amazingly, all it says is that, you know, don't deny women, you know, equal access to, you know, something to have government funds, you know, educational opportunities, right? That's all it says. I mean, it's like, it's like two sentences long. And this became the justification for, okay, your colleges, you're discriminating against women uh, if you don't have as many, you know, female sports as male sports. And we'll tell you what kind of sports they have. They have to be as competitive because, you know, they can't be just cheerleading. Like, we're going to tell you, you know, women have to, you know, if you have, you know, you know 200 pl you know, players in football, male football and basketball, you have to have some kind of equivalent for women. If the interest is not there, if men care more about sports more, too bad. You either cut the male sports or you you know, increase the female sports. And, and, you know, it's really funny. You go to universities now. I remember I was at UCLA and I talked to a girl on the rowing team. She said no girls at UCLA want to be on the rowing team. Uh, but basically, like, anyone would just recruit their friends and they're begging and the turnover would be like one girl would show up, another would come. Because no one cares about rowing. I mean, it's just, it's just a very strange thing. Uh, but it's part of civil rights law. Um, and then the rape tribunals, right, where they would, uh, where they would basically kick men out of school uh, if a woman accused him of rape or sexual assault, um, you know, the, the Obama administration went, you know, deep, deep into the details of like, 
you have to use this preponderance of evidence. You can't, you know, have cross-examination. Um, you, you know, you can't have that preponderance of the evidence standard. You can't, it's not like a court where reasonable, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. And so basically like, like the, the federal government got into, um, uh, you know, got into a, uh, a really weird place of social engineering. Can you still hear me by the way? Mm-hmm. Yes, I can. You're loud and clear. Okay. Okay, good. I got a, uh, uh, message from somebody who's so it's on your end the person who just texted me um and so yeah i mean i have a, like a you know i try to simple i try to you know i know this is like you know maybe not like uh uh you know for non-lawyers maybe it's like hard to keep track with this stuff so i try to be very systematic i try to break it down into themes uh, i do have a table um you know like one at least one table in the book that explains it but the book is more than that i mean the book goes into like sort of the downstream culture effects too but those are those are basically the uh uh, the legal doctrines that I think have been most important. Yep, absolutely. And real quick, if anybody is having audio issues, um, typically what helps resolve them with spaces is if you drop the space and rejoin. So if anybody's having audio issues, go ahead and do that. Um, and then, um, and then I want I want to start digging into each of those pillars. Um, so I think, like um, Richard said, because of Vivek and because of the recent Supreme Court cases, affirmative action has been kind of in the forefront of the national consciousness. So with affirmative action, like you know, how do you uh, like can we like break down how it effectively discriminates against Asians and whites in the context of the universe? system oh it just i mean it just does it just does i mean you know and uh uh you know and, um, uh in the context of the university system you know i mean like we'll see we're still we're still on the uh, heels of a uh, court decision that's going to tell them you know they don't want to they can't do that anymore now they can't do it directly but like now they're planning you know like sort of openly like we just want you know we're gonna like sort of uh, do these things that hopefully result in, you know, better, uh, you know, demographics closer to what we want. Um, but yeah, I mean, like the unit, the universities are, you know, in re- in really bad shape. I mean, you have, you know, we, we, this stuff came out in the courts, like just, you, you know, you can get exact data on like how much better your scores have to be if you're white or if you're Asian than if you're black or uh, Hispanic uh, in order to have a good chance at a school. Um, and, you know, people like in academia, you know, it's, uh, you know, they, you know, people who've been through the job process, like, it's really, I mean, it's really bad. I mean, I've had multiple people tell me, like, you know, they were, they were in a job interview and they basically said, we can't, you know, somebody told them, you know, we can't tell you this, um, you know, we'll deny we said this, but, you know, we, uh, you know, we, uh, uh, you know, we can't hire a white male for, for this position. You know, it's like, it's like worse in academia than anywhere else because there's no market, you know, incentive uh, to get things right. Um, and so like, you know, these are professors, they're just, you know, their whole career is sort of, uh, signaling they're good people and they have the right politics. And what's a hire in that case? A hire is often just, you know, the person who makes them feel good or shares their politics. And, you know, you, you could see how, like, if they don't, they don't have any financial stake in the decision, you could see how that's got, they can go off the rails and that has gone off the rails. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you're seeing loyalty oaths, uh, you know, to, uh, diversity ideology, the diversity statements, particularly in California. I don't know if we're going to. You know, I don't know if we're going to fix that in particular because, like, you know, I have some hopes for, like, uh, federal courts and, you know, certain, you know, certain things and red states, of course. Uh, but, you know, I think parts of the universities, that's probably the toughest nut to crack. Yeah, I think so, too. I think with the universities, um, there's a lot of pressure there. And, like, they're so ideologically skewed in one direction. I, I think it's going to be very hard to get some uh, good things on that end to turn around. And, like, I think... I think it was Rob Henderson, you know, he said something that, that I think summed up the university situation very well. Like they got rid of um, SAT tests and standardized testing before they got rid of legacy admissions. That, that was in the context of the Ivy Leagues. Like, and it makes me wonder, like, how much of this is like virtue signaling and how much of it is just pressure from, you know, like, like pressure from the, um, you know, from, from what's been going on. 
It's an interesting question because, you know, the pressure on legacy admissions came uh, came pretty, you know, pretty quickly and pretty suddenly um, after the, uh, uh, you know, after the, uh, uh, the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action. And, you know, one theory is they couldn't really have legacies and also have, um, affer- you know, not have affirmative action because say you're discriminating against, you know, for uh, legacies who are maybe disproportionately white. Um, and so therefore, you know, you have to have like sort of, you, you sort of have a shield by discriminating in favor of minorities. Now, like some of the narrative around the legacy admissions, I don't think is very honest. I mean, like the New York Times had an article that basically showed um, that there, you know, like there, there's something for like affirmative action for the wealthy. And it's like, there was none except for like the top 1% or something like that. It was like 99, you know, the 90th percentile was like just as good as like the 20th percentile of income. Uh, so really, I mean, it seems like the discrimination here is not that great. I mean, I think there's actually, you know, I, I'm not, you know, hostile to legacy admissions. I think that like, you know, first of all, these are private institutions. My inclination is like libertarianism. So like if, if we could have like a system where anyone can do whatever they want, if they're private institutions, that would like, that would be a, a sort of ideal for me. Um, but you know, like, uh, you know, there is a sort of institutional interest in like, you know, maybe having, you know, families identify with the school or, um, or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, the legacy admissions are in trouble. Just the thought that you could, you know, just the ideological sort of, um, you know, impetus to get rid of them, uh, after affirmative action, I think is, is, uh, just very strong. I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's just, you know, like, you know, this is something I go into the book. It's just like the way they practice affirmative action, right? They don't care about Arabs. They don't care about Hmong, right? They care about Hispanics. They care about Blacks. You know, they, they, they break things up, like, very conveniently in the exact way the federal government breaks down race into these sort of weird categories, right? And, that, you know, that's an indication that it's not conviction or the conviction is being derived from sort of these unthinking bureaucratic categories. But I think that's just sort of like one of the interesting subtleties here of what's going on and shows you, you know, the laws behind it. Yeah, and I think you touched on something interesting there. Like, um, I, I remember we talked about this, you know, um, when we met up that one time and you had a thread about how the government sort of invents racial categories. Like, I think Hispanic didn't exist until the 70s. And then we also talked about how the government invented AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islanders. Yeah. Yeah, the first, not, not, yeah, the first way, the, it depends on where you're looking in the government, but the Census Bureau did not have a Hispanic question until 1980, and it was very controversial. Uh, the New York Times had a headline that said basically demographics, demogra- demographers uh, say that this is a BS category. It has, these people have nothing to do with each other. It's just completely, you know, invented. This was the front page of the New York Times. It wasn't like a, you know, a crazy argument to make. That was, you know, 19, that article was in 78, but then in 1980, they did, um, they did invent the Hispanic category on the census. And now it's the most natural thing in the world. We have a Latino vote. We have a white vote. You know, we have the great replacement. Like people worried that like, uh, you know, Hispanics are going to displace whites. The, ca- the category didn't exist. I mean, the category didn't exist in the 19, you know, 1970. Like nobody cares, like neither liberals nor, you know, right wingers uh, care whether these Hispanics are brown or white. We don't know. We don't collect like, you know, their skin missions are in trouble. Just the thought that you could, you know, just the ideological sort of, um, you know, imp- impetus to get rid of them. Uh, after affirmative action, I think is is uh, just very strong. I mean, it's you know, it's interesting. It's just you know, like I, you know, this is something I go into the book. It's just like the way they practice affirmative action, right? They don't care about Arabs. They don't care about Hmong, right? They care about Hispanics. They care about Blacks. You know, they 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 break things up like very conveniently in the exact way the federal government breaks down race into these sort of weird categories, right? And that you know, that's an indication that it's not conviction or the conviction is being derived 
from sort of these unthinking bureaucratic categories. But I think that's just sort of like one of the interesting subtleties here of what's going on and shows you, you know, the laws behind it. Yeah. And I think you touched on something interesting there. Like, um, I, I remember we talked about this, you know, um, when we met up that one time and you had a thread about how the government sort of invents racial categories. Like, I think Hispanic didn't exist until the 70s. And then we also talked about how the government invented AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islanders. Yeah. Yeah, the first, not, yeah, the first way, the, depends on where you're looking in the government, but the Census Bureau did not have a Hispanic question until 1980, and it was very controversial. Uh, the New York Times had a headline that said basically demographics, demogra- demographers uh, say that this is a BS category. It has, these people have nothing to do with each other. It's just completely, you know, invented. This was the front page of the New York Times. It wasn't like a, you know, a crazy argument to make. That was, you know, 19, that article was in 78, but then in 1980, they did, um, they did invent the Hispanic category on the census. And now it's the most natural thing in the world. We have a Latino vote. We have a white vote. You know, we have the great replacement, like people worried that like, uh, you know, Hispanics are going to displace whites. The, ca- the category didn't exist. I mean, the category didn't exist in the 19, you know, 1970. Like nobody cares, like neither liberals nor, you know, right wingers uh, care whether these Hispanics are brown or white. We don't know. We don't collect like, you know, their skin tone or, you know, their actual ancestry. Right. We just have this category we lumped everyone into. And you can show that the government did this before society did this. This is like the historical analysis there. Um, And yeah, we just take it as natural. But like, we don't have to take it as natural. That shows it's contingent. And we could have, you know, we could have easily chose to do something else. Yep, absolutely. And I want to circle back to the Supreme Court ruling that happened recently. Um, Like if that ruling had happened um, before before the draft of the book was finalized, like, you know, are there any parts that would have changed in regards to the affirmative action portions of the of the writing? Yeah, so when I wrote the book, um, when I wrote the, the book, I knew that this decision was going to come around the time that the book was going to be published. So I have like several sentences in there where it's like SFFA be harbor before the court. This po- this part, you know, you know, might not hold by the time the book is out. And you know, we, we you know we knew it was coming in the summer, and we knew my book was coming out after. So we knew it was going to you know not be able to incorporate it, but it wouldn't have changed the historical. Um, you know, story story here because so much of the book is history and about you know what people should be do should be doing. So one of the things I recommend is you know uh, you know Supreme Court ruling against affirmative action. Obviously, you know check you know that's you know one thing that's down. Um, but yeah, it's uh, you know it, do- it doesn't change the you know it doesn't change the main story and it's gonna it's an interesting sociological experiment. I think you know right when it came down and this is like this I think sort of supported the thesis of my book. The narrative changed right when the decision came down. People said this wouldn't matter. Um, you know, they'll just whatever. They'll just wink and nod and uh, still discriminate based on race. But then you see story after story. And, you know, my friend uh, Aaron Saberium, uh, who's a reporter on this stuff, um, just like, you know, break story after story about these uh, universities doing this or universities doing that. Some of them are, you know, adjusting and trying to sort of get around the system. Some of them are, you know, getting rid of uh, – uh, you know, getting rid of, um, you know, racial preferences and getting rid of programs. And, you know, there's some of, and in some cases, there's been, you know, sort of a synergy between the state level laws that have been passed and the court decision. So in Texas, you know, they're closed, they're closing the DEI offices. I mean, like, like they're taking down, you know, the statues of Stalin. I mean, I think these people are just getting, you know, uh, uh, the, the people are just getting sort of reshuffled, but you know it's pretty powerful to cl- you know pretty powerful to close out the office. And like one university got rid of the LGBTQ center, they're just like you know just to be safe, like you know you know that's like close enough to uh, you know a DEI office. Uh, but maybe we don't, maybe we don't need that. Um, and you know I think corporations like when you trade like uh, I, you know universities are the hardest place to change because you know they're people without a market incentive to do the right thing and they're just sort of ideologically crazy anyway and they're filled with these crazy students and crazy faculties. I think when you change the law for business, 
I think business is, a, you know, the woke capital. I mean, I've always said this is a paper tiger. People thought these were zombies. They're just walking around. You know, they, they all genuinely believe in, you know, BLM and uh, LGBTQ. And, you know, the market doesn't even matter. Like, you know, they'll, they'll sacrifice their business or whatever. I mean, you see these articles now. I think that Elon Musk buying uh, buying X um, had a big you know big thing to do with this, and there's been some articles on this too. But I think you know it's still the profit motive is still you know strong, and I think that like you change the laws, you change the incentives, you change you know things like you know who's able to organize on Twitter and whether people are able to organize, um, and you're going to see you're going to see major changes. So yeah, I mean this could all I mean this this is all contingent, right? Like I mean the Democrat the Democrats could win in twenty. Uh, 24, a few Supreme Court justices could die, they could have the Senate, they could stack the judiciary, and we can go right back to square one. Um, and so it's, it is contingent on sort of political uh, events. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I just want people to know it could go in each, either direction. Yep. And then, and then you, you kind of like touched on like, you know, uh, can we t- can we like discuss the executive orders at the um, at the federal level that kind of enforce the affirmative action quotas and contracting? Because I think, um, I think there's been a lot of focus on ESG and like these um, and BlackRock and Vanguard, like the incentives that they create, but I but I also want to give everyone and some incentive to the into those EOs because it seems like they they're more far reaching than people might be led to believe at first sight. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, I talked about it, you know, a little bit before. So it was EO one one two four six. Vivek, you know, to his credit, has promised to repeal it or uh, or uh, modify it. His first state office. Yeah, this one just says as Johnson says every government contractor and their subcontractor will practice uh, affirmative action. And this is um, and this is for the entire workforce. If you're a Walmart and you have like a little bit con- a little contract, you have to do it for every Walmart store everywhere. I mean, it's really a very sweeping thing. That's how you end up like, a, you know, 25, 30% of the uh, workforce. It, it actually didn't st- like, jo- it was the way it was interpreted during the Johnson administration. Um, it was pretty, pretty much, it wasn't doing all that much. Um, it really took off during the Nixon administration where they started, uh, so there was something called the Philadelphia Plan where Nixon was going after the construction industry. He was trying to divide organized labor and um, the civil rights movement. So the organized labor guys, they didn't want um, quotas because they were like all these you know, white construction guys who you know, passed on their uh, jobs to their sons. And then, but then there was like the black civil rights workers and Nixon wanted to divide them by pushing affirmative action onto it. And then sort of perhaps without Nixon knowing, it seems like he pro- might not have known this, um, his labor department extended it to all federal contractors, not just construction, not just construction, which is what he was targeting, and he was targeting the labor unions. And so this became, um, the, you know, this became this became the law. Reagan tried to do something about it. You know, the, um, he he fought he fought got pushback from Republicans in Congress. Actually, that wouldn't happen today, by the way, if Trump wanted to, you know, had wanted to uh, uh, sign the executive order. And you know, I talk about this too. You know, I really cover the way the Republican Party changed and the political incentives. Uh, over time, I go decade by decade here. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's still there. Um, you know, Trump even, he, he, you know, people were, this wasn't on people's radar yet. So I, I listened to a podcast where, you know, Trump's guy who's running the part of the labor department that's responsible for that stuff is like bragging about um, how he was like, you know, bringing intersectionality analysis, like not just saying you need more blacks or more women, but like looking at black women. And I, I sent this to a, a friend who was working on personnel in the Trump administration. I'm like, how did this guy get through? And he's like, oh my God, he was, he was horrified. <laughs> he was horrified. How did this guy get the job? I have no idea. So somebody told 
told Trump, some establishment person told Trump, like, this is the guy who specializes in the Department of Labor and government contracts. Um, you know, hire him. He's just the guy who does it. And he's on a panel, you know, bragging about all the affirmative action that the Trump administration did. This is what the DeSantis people say. DeSantis will uh, be a little bit smarter. I think even Trump will be a little bit smarter because, you know, people, thanks to me um, and thanks to others, know that, like, you know, there's affirmative action in government contracting. And there is actually, you know, the part of the Labor Department that does something about this. And I think it's going to, you know, it's going to be very different. I, you know, I do credit the Trump administration with a lot. People say, oh, Trump is, you know, sort of out to lunch and not paying attention. True, relative to like what DeSantis did in Florida. But compared to past Republican administrations, um, you know, they were they were solid on a lot of the civil rights stuff. And a more focused administration, even a second Trump term, I think will be more focused, more ideologically sort of uh, focused on this stuff because people are sort of around Trump are, you know, thinking about what to do next. Um, you know, I think you know a lot. A lot of good can be done, starting with the uh, starting with the affirmative action executive order. Yeah, and I think that, I think that's interesting, like how how the dynamic between the Republicans and Democrats has evolved over time. Because I think um, I think it was mentioned like really any president can get rid of these executive orders, and there might be like some back and forth as administrations change. But really, any Republican or Democrat can come into office, and if they don't like an old EO, they can overturn it. So, like, what kind of stopped um, previous presidents from doing something? And like, and like, how is the how is the climate sort of shifted? over the decades. So now, so now it's, it's a more friendly climate to overturn these EOs. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I identify, you know, sort of four eras in the, the history of sort of conservatives in the civil rights movement. Uh, so first of all, there was no distinction between sort of Republicans and Democrats on civil rights issues. Um, you know, there was a distinction, obviously, uh, but the Democrats had a Dixie party wing. A lot of Republicans were sort of pro-pushing civil rights forward. So like I said, Dixon went farther than Johnson on executive on affirmative action and contracting. And this lasted, you know, really basically until Reagan. And Reagan comes in and Reagan is the first time, you know, this is the triumph of sort of the uh, uh, this is the triumph of the conservative movement. It becomes a movement, you know, in, in of itself, uh, ideological force, not just sort of Democrats who are a little bit, you know, uh, you know, just not just like people who accept all the assumptions of the Democrats and want to go slower or not be so extreme. Uh, Reagan wants to do something on executive order 11246 specifically. Um, Republicans in Congress get beaten up over it. And another thing was the Supreme Court was starting to do stuff too. So there was a, uh, there was a case called Grove City College that actually stripped um, – uh, the ability of, uh, uh, you know, this Title IX stuff that would come decades later, like it would have preempted all of that. Um, but then, you know, Congress, Reagan v. Congress tried to go back and like put in the Title IX, the uh, Title VI slash Title IX regime. And then Reagan vetoed it and they overcame his veto. So Reagan so was threatened on this executive. So you had this divided where you had this sort of uh, moderates versus conservatives uh, fight. And eventually, you know, Reagan f- figured out he couldn't do it. George H.W. Bush actually expands. Um, he has something called the Civil Rights Act of 1991, which is a horrible law, which I talk about for uh, uh, several reasons. Um, but then you have like, and this is a bigger story. This is not just affirmative action or civil rights law. You have this, you know, polarization where the Republican Party becomes more right wing on every issue. Right? There used to be gun control Republicans. There used to be pro-choice uh, Republicans. There used to be Republicans who favored uh, higher taxes. All that's gone. I mean, the movement, like, not on every issue, but a lot of issues, like, you know, the party becomes more homogenous. Same thing happens on the Democratic side, too. But, like, by then, um, now we're in the late, you know, 2010s Tea Party. Everyone's forgotten, right? Everyone's forgotten the battles of the Reagan days, what Nixon did, uh, what Johnson was doing. 
and people just forgot. So this is why, like, you know, the, the you know, like the pushback Reagan got from Congress, that wouldn't happen with the Republican Party. Like the Republican Party, when Trump got rid of, you know, the head that uh, when he saw Rufo on Tucker and then uh, signed that executive order to get rid of critical race theory training in the federal government, uh, there was no push. Of course, no Republican pushback on that. Like if that happened in the 1980s, they would have all been joining up with the Democrats in the downside. But there's been, you know, we talk about rhinos and like real concern. It's like, no, there's been real sorting, like. You know, almost nobody is a rhino like Liz Cheney is like, you know, is not a rhino by the standards of previous decades. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the time really is ripe to do something about this. You know, and I think that, you know, if, if we have a Republican president, things will happen. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, like we're seeing Vivek run for president. And one of his big things is is the executive order for affirmative action. Right. Like he wants to overturn it. So like now these conversations are being had at the national level again. Um, and I, I want to start pivoting into disparate impact because I think. I think that's like a really fuzzy concept for many people because we've heard a lot about affirmative action because of the Supreme Court cases. Um, so before digging into disparate impact, I, I think we should first establish the distinction between dis, uh, between discrimination and disparities. Like, how do you sort of distinguish those two concepts? Uh, so, you know, the, the, what everyone thought they were banning with, the, um, you know, uh, with the Civil Rights Act of 64 was discrimination and the intentional discrimination. Right. I don't want black people to work for me or I don't want women to work for me and I don't want whites to work for me. And they were very clear that it would protect whites, too. Um, and so that's like, you know, that's disparate treatment. It, it's, it's hard to find a lot of that, you know, in, in the, the real world, um, even like, you know, even like secret. Right. And so, like, almost immediately, the civil rights regime switched to disparate impact, which was the idea that, you know, it, and it sounds so crazy that it's like it's hard to believe. Um, and then you sort of, when you sort of internalize it, you see sort of the uh, tyrannical implications of it, right? Any measure um, that, you know, where whites do better than blacks, and this is not just people think about like, oh, standardized tests or tests for employment. It's anything like the EEOC, the Google Employment Opportunity Commission has gone after places for like, you know, they, they've done stuff like not hiring criminals because it has a disparate impact, you know, like tardy, like a policy for tardiness. Like in theory, like you can have things that have disparate impact. Uh, but like the burden becomes on you to show that there's a business necessity. And, you know, that's a that's a big pain. Um, and everything has a disparate impact. Gail Harriott, uh, who's a professor at uh, UCSD, said she'll give $10,000 to anyone who could find any job qualification or anything that doesn't have a disparate impact on some group. Right. It could be women. It could be, you know, blacks, Hispanics, uh, whatever. And it doesn't exist. So what does that mean? That's that's arbitrary power in the hands of the government during COVID-19. Um, this was a little bit different as disability law, you know, but they would say like, oh, you're, you're, some Republican states want to ban masks in school. Well, uh, you know, minorities are harder hit by COVID. Therefore, this is a civil rights issue. Literally anything they want to do, they could find a civil rights angle. to. This is why this is such a pernicious doctrine um, that like, OK, so now liberals are really into masks and they're really into COVID restrictions. OK, like you can just dust off civil rights law. It's a, I call it the skeleton key of the left. Uh, so it's really a pernicious concept. You see them going after Musk now for some of his companies. Just you know, they happen to be you know disparate impact on this group uh, or that group. Even when the when the, there was a, some news reports on when he bought Twitter and he was just like firing people who were useless. To people, and then the attorneys go to him and they say, uh, uh, you know, you have to check it for disparate impact. <laughs> you have to make sure there's enough whites and men being fired. Um, you know, if, if you think all the useless people, you know, if they're disproportionately one race or you know if they're disproportionately you know non-white men, uh, you could be in trouble. 
and you know musk often you know does you know uh he's often different from other businessmen he says no i don't care we're just gonna fire who we want to fire and you know like i think there's there actually is lawsuits I, I i haven't heard what happened to them but you know there have been uh uh there was something filed uh, in california that did rely on disparate impact um but literally it's everything is disparate impact if you don't want disparate impact what do you do you have quotas you discriminate against whites and against men that's why everyone ends up doing that um, and then, you know, the ones who they don't like or the ones who have still have some kind of problem, they can go after them. I mean, that's a recurring theme. Yeah, I think with disparate impact, it's such a broad concept. Like, I mean, you, you already said it. Everything has disparate impact. Like, you know, just like even the space has disparate impact because like there's, you know, there's always going to be trade-offs, right, between between things. So because disparate impact is such a broad thing, like it's kind of like a looming threat like you know like like sort of like oh you know nice business it would be it would suck if someone sued you for disparate impact like like do you think that's accurate like you know because i've i noticed like i always see these sort of meme articles like oh so and so disproportionately affected i'm like how's that discrimination and then knowing about disparate impact it kind of makes sense why that's like a subtle threat like it seems like it's so broad that it essentially serves as a blackmail material like if there's you know, for example, like, you know, if someone doesn't like Elon and his company, they can make some nonsense disparate impact claim and go after him that way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I have an example of a, 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 a Coinbase, right? So Brian Armstrong um, in 2020 says, um, we're not going to have politics. In 2020, this was pretty radical. Um, you know, like 2020, everyone was going crazy. It might have been 2021. I don't know, like whatever, like not that long ago. Now corporations are stepping a little bit back from openness. So back then it was pretty radical. Um, and all these appearances, all these articles start appearing in like the New York Times and, you know, these other uh uh, I think basically the New York Times, maybe, maybe not other uh, other uh, outlets, uh, you know, saying that, you know, some, you know, minorities and women feel mistreated. Somebody leaks like their pay data and the pay data is not controlled for anything. Right. It's the you know, they, they, they say, you know, uh, I don't I forget. I think it was women. I don't think it was uh, minorities, but it was women who were making less than men, not controlled for anything. And like the New York Times put together these charts and. You know, you could tell that, you, you know, uh, Brian Armstrong and Coinbase can tell, you know, people he doesn't care about wokeness. Um, he wants to treat people as individuals. But the New York Times is basically uh, putting up, you know, a siren and, and uh, you know, flares and, and pointing to his business and saying, you know, investigate this. There's something to investigate here. Um, and I don't think I don't think they actually did end up facing an investigation. I mean, we're lucky sort of the civil rights. You know, there's not that many civil rights bureaucrats. A lot of it is outsourced to lawyers um, who are, you know, just looking for the target. But there's also... You know, the economy, you know, one hope is like the economy grows and there's only a fine, you know, the uh, number of lawyers doesn't grow in tandem and the number of government bureaucrats doesn't grow in tandem. So it's like, you know, they can't get everything. They can only get a fraction of stuff, but they tend to go for the big, the big fish. I mean, you know, there was a report showing 99 percent of Fortune 500 companies had to like settle the civil rights uh, case uh, in the last, you know, in the last how many, uh, how many years. Um, and so like, yeah, they go with the ones with the deepest pockets. The, you know, these are the uh, uh, institutions with the biggest, with the most influence so they can shape the culture. You know, they're the ones who sort of set the uh, best practices, the standards uh, for their for their industry. And yeah, I mean, it's a very, you know, the system is a uh, sort of, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it works well. I mean, it, you know, it's sort of impressive, you know, how it like sort of, it's an impressive machine of social engineering, but you know, there there's laws at the bottom of it. The laws, you know, can be changed much easier than culture can. And and with disparate impact, like it, it kind of goes against the vision of the original Civil Rights Act, right? Like I think, like I, is it fair to say, like you know, like part of the issue is that discrimination wasn't defined explicitly enough in, in the nineteen sixty four Act. Uh, well, I mean, you know, words are you know words are words are words. Um, you know, they, yeah, they, you're right. It wasn't defined explicitly, but we do have a um, a legislative history, and we could see what people were saying. 
Um, and I, I, you know, I dig up quotes, um, you know, where uh, Hubert Humphrey says, I'll eat the bill if it's ever going to lead to quotas, right? She'll be where the, there's quotas in the bill. I'll eat the bill. Um, there's other ones where, you know, there's senators saying, you know, uh, you could hire, you set the standards, whatever you want. This is not about, you know, testing or trying to lower standards, even if everyone is white, even if they, because of reasons of education or background, you know, all your employees are white. Um, this doesn't affect that. I mean, it's really, really explicit. There was even a case of, um, in, uh, there was a, like a civil rights statute in Illinois. And while the civil rights act was being debated, um, the, uh, you know, Il the Illinois interprets it in a way, the commission in Illinois interprets it in a way where there's desperate impact. It was Motorola, a black guy failed the test, said the test was racist. And this became a story in the New York times. The New York times treated this as like really weird. Like the civil rights stuff would go this far. And then everyone in Congress like got up and said, no, what Illinois just did, we're not going to do that. We're not going to have, you know, a disparate impact standard. So it's not like this is like something nobody had heard of before. People knew they didn't, they didn't call it disparate impact back then, but they knew that like, you know, the idea that a test could be racist, um, you know, if some group did better than the others, you know, that, that was in the air. I mean, there was, you know, Angela Davis saying, you know, uh, the criminal justice system is racist because blacks are overrepresented. These arguments had been around. Uh, but they were they were um, they were decisively rejected in the civil rights act. There's even something called the Tower Amendment. You know, I'm boring. It's, it seems redundant. I'm just telling you like all these things that are like evidence that like nobody thought there was a disparate impact standard or there wanted a disparate impact standard or there would be. Uh, so you're right. The, the law doesn't uh, define discrimination, but like the way that you you know use words, you know the uh, you know the way that like just the dictionary definition plus the legislative history, which is what else people look at and the original intent of the legislators, and depending on your uh, uh, depending on your method of judicial interpretation, it was pretty clear that it was not supposed to lead to this. Um, even the EEOC, the you know the Griggs case in 1971 was when the Supreme Court uh, established this impact standard. The EEOC, um, that's the government agency in, in charge of this uh, enforcement, thought they were going to lose the case. Um, and they were just like assuming that if disparate impact, they were trying to do disparate impact. They assumed if it never got to the court, they would see it was so obvious, um, you know, uh, not a course with the law. But man, people were crazy. Um, like it's not just civil rights law. I mean, you look at the 1960s, 1970s, the court decisions on some things like busing, like, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, it, it, just these ridiculous, like taking kids, shipping them on huge bus rides, making their entire day bus rides uh, because of so-called, so you know, supposedly this was supposed to be desegregation, but it wasn't desegregation. It was literally just like taking kids and just making like, you know, an hour each way and like ruining their childhoods. I mean, they were just no basis in law. Like it was unpopular. There was no law that said you could do this. I mean, there was just sort of like this insanity on these racial issues. I mean, before there was like really a conservative movement, just imagine a world where Republican appointed judges and Democratic appointed judges are liberal or quote unquote woke on race stuff. And this is why sort of like I take issue with people who think wokeness is just something that happened like five years ago. A lot of ways they were more the 60s and 70s were more crazy. I mean, they invented the disparate impact standard. They invented school busing. You can't get away with that stuff today, um, part because of conservatives and you know, part because not even liberals are trying to do uh, a lot of those things. Um, I think the rhetoric has become more crazy. Now you're, you know, you have these sort of, uh, you know, these sort of like comical figures like Ibram Kendi um, and people who are worse than that, right? Who are going around lecturing people and saying absurd things. Uh, it's relatively benign compared to you know what liberals and what what elites were doing on race in the 1960s and 1970s. Yep. And then for people who don't know, like, you know, Ibram X. Kendi, like this dude is, he has some very interesting ideas. Like one of his most famous quotes is discrimination in the past can only be solved by discrimination in the present. Discrimination in the present can be solved by discrimination in the future. Like, I'm not even exaggerating. That's like a literal quote from his book. So like, so like you know, what people think is anti-racism, it's, it's just like an endless cycle. Like, 
<laughs> can the inventor time travel? What is it? Discrimination of the present can solve discrimination of the... Or what, what yeah, he said uh, discrimination of the present can only be solved by discrimination of the future. So, like, I mean, it, it's, it's because, like... Uh, I mean, I'll call him a grifter. Like, it's because these grifters, you know, they're only going to be relevant as long as discrimination and like and racism is a thing, right? So, I mean, the way I see it, Kendi's trying to create an endless cycle. So, you know, he can stay relevant. I mean, even like right now, you know, his his anti-racist center is falling apart. I think Rufo shared, shared a screenshot from an article earlier yesterday or today. Yep. In regards to, um, let's see. And like in regards to disparate impact, like I think you kind of touched on Griggs v. Duke. Like, can we talk about um, the can of worms that is IQ testing? Like, you know how accurate it is, why employers used to use it, and what and what happened during Griggs v. Duke. Yeah, I mean, so I think some people can make too much of I, IQ tests. Um, you know, they do uh, they do predict things. You know, they do predict um, how well you do at just pretty much every job uh, ever measured. Now, a lot of this has been outsourced to the universities, right? So the universities give you an IQ test, which is, you know, the SAT, pretty much what it is. Um, and a lot of the graduate, uh, 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 a lot of the graduate um, uh, examinations, like particularly the LSAT, which is, you know, not based on any like actual knowledge. Um, that's how you, you know, become a lawyer in this country. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the good thing is they're relative, you know, they're relatively cheap. It's just, it's just a test you would, you know, you administer, um, it's cheaper for society. I mean, you know, the, rather than someone going to a college for four years and sort of wasting you know, their life, they could just, you know, take an hour, uh, test or however long it, uh, takes, um, you know, they, they work. I, now I don't like, I, I think that like people fetishize it too much, like a world where like every employer had to use an IQ test, like would be, you know, a terrible world or every employer I think did, did do that, uh, because, you know, the, this is why flexible labor markets are good. You want people to try stuff. You want to lower the cost of hiring and firing people uh, so people can try things and people can, you know, have opportunities. Uh, that's what's important. But, yeah, the IQ test, the civil rights regime really, really doesn't like them. They're like the sort of platonic ideal of the thing they don't like uh, because it's something that's like quick and easy and shows that races uh, are different. Um, and for that reason, they've been, you know, purged to a large extent um, from uh, uh, from, you know, especially uh, uh, government employment, you know, they, you really, I mean, they really just, they, they don't test for intelligence at all in government employment. I have a part of, you know, the book just on what happened to the civil service. You know, like I said, this is another theme of the book that like, you know, business, private enterprise, they have an incentive to you know, actually care about uh, merit because they have a profit motive. Um, it just, you know, like, you know, you look at the, what, how they do federal hiring today. I mean, like, they'll just say, you know, it's basically, you know, the Washington Post story just said basically, you know, luck. I mean, it's basically a lottery. You apply for a you know, federal job and everything is racist. But then they don't go after the universities, right? Because the universities are woke. Liberals don't like IQ tests because that can let anyone, you know, uh, just sort of uh, bypass every institution. Uh, you know, the college, requiring a college degree, you could do that. It has a disparate impact. Uh, whites have, and Asians are more likely to have uh, college degrees than blacks and particularly Hispanics. Um, but, you know, that's allowed. Why is that? Is there, you know, is there anything in the law that you could find that could say, uh, I, you know, IQ tests or, you know, not just IQ tests, pencil, paper and pencil of any kind. You, you know, you have trouble giving a uh, exam for firefighters. There was a big Supreme Court case about this about a decade ago called Ritchie. So to, don't like focus too narrowly on IQ tests. It's any paper and pencil exam because it might show a uh, uh, racial difference. It's just, you know, uh, the firefighting exam is just about being a firefighter. Uh, so, yeah, I think this is just another theme of like sort of like the arbitrary nature of civil rights law. It just ends up being things that they, you know, things that liberals sort of like uh, are allowed and things they don't like are not allowed. I think that's, I think that kind of nails it. Like, what, I took, I, I touched on the IQ test because it seems like, you know, um, that was kind of like the first 
high profile thing that I'm aware of. And then later on, you know, we started seeing other measures of merit, you know, being undermined, like, you know, the SAT is kind of, it seems like it's on its way out, right, for example. And uh, kind of on that note, like for the general audience, you know, um, a lot of tests like the SAT, like they correlate with with uh with classic iq tests at like 0.8 like i think it was higher before you know before they watered the sat down but like it's a fairly strong correlation so like things like sats like it can it can be a proxy for iq in many cases and um and uh, richard feel free to respond to that but i wanted to my next question is like you know what does the pathway to undoing disparate impact look like like what steps can be taken to kind of mitigate how often disparate impact is abused or even comes up uh supreme court saying that um uh, disparate impact is not, you know, is not consistent with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I mean, that's really, that's really what you need. Um, there is some complication because the Civil Rights Act of 1991 arguably codified it, but I argue in the, I argue in the uh, book that you could make a case that it's constitutionally, uh, if if disparate impact is a standard, it's constitutionally very uh, questionable. And we've had, you know, we've had, um, uh, you know, dissents uh, in recent years on, um, you know, there was one uh, about uh, uh, disparate impact in the world of um, uh, housing. Um, it was the um, and you know uh, uh, the uh, Thomas you know said basically I'm just writing this you know this uh, uh, dissent to say you know the entire disparate impact regime is based on you know House of Sand so you know Thomas was ready to just you know uh, take apart the entire disparate impact regime you could do it um, through government um, through like the federal government can stop interpreting things through disparate impact there was a um, you know, this is one of my funny, funniest things. There was a story in the Washington Post that the Trump administration is uh, through the Justice Department, Bill Barr, was going to get rid of disparate impact as a standard that the Justice Department used. And that would sort of have ripple effects throughout the government. You know, the, this was a Washington Post story. The, uh, the date on the story was January 5th, 2021. Right. And so, like, you know, that's pretty late in the game. Right. The next day is January 6th. Trump is, you know, gone within a few weeks. Uh, you know, what a time to start on that. Um, next administration hopefully will be starting on that, you know, in day one, not not like the day before, you know, the, the certification of the next president coming in. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the, you know, it's, it's a pretty, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's not like these are things that have like, if I go to the Federal Society and I have gone talk to people in the Federal Society or, uh, you know, at the Federal Society headquarters or like lost to it, it's not like I'm telling them radical things that like they think is a crazy interpretation of the law. This is, you know, this is conservative jurisprudence. I mean, you had... Uh, you know, Kennedy and, you know, you haven't had a conservative Supreme Court for that long. Um, but like any, any, you know, anybody who's getting appointed to the Supreme Court by a Republican judge today is going to rule on the right way on these things. The uh, practical thing is getting sort of activists and lawyers and, you know, people like writing law review articles that explain this and like say like exactly what you need to do. And then people filing the right lawsuits and being strategic, you know, the, the sort of how, um, how sort of legal change uh, is made. Uh, there was a book called by Steve Tellis called The Rise of the Conservative Legal Movement. It's actually a fascinating story, well, fascinating to like, you know, nerds, you know, law nerds. Um, but, it, you know, it's very interesting, like how like this stuff happens. You know, it's, it's a political and sort of social process as much as it is a legal process. Absolutely. And I want to I want to start pivoting over to harassment law. Um, so I if if I remember correctly, like, you know, harassment, like, sort, sort of like what became harassment law, it wasn't part of the original scope of the Civil Rights Act, right? Like, it kind of sprang out um, because there was a troll amendment proposed because nobody thought it was going to get passed, which sort of added sex as a protected class. Like, can we kind of get into how harassment law sort of started? Yeah, so nobody, nobody is, yeah, so nobody is thinking about Civil Rights Act. Everyone wants to do something about Black people in the South. Um, and, uh, you know, nobody's thinking about discrimination against women at the time of the civil rights. I mean, people were, some people were thinking about it, but it wasn't, that wasn't what the law was trying to do. So there's this, uh, Southern, uh, 
uh, uh, uh, segregationist who wants to kill the bill from Virginia. And he puts in a bill that says, okay, race, and you can't discriminate against sex. Now, people thought this was sort of insane, like not discriminate against, you know, based on sex. Like America and society in 1964 did not think that that was reasonable. I mean, feminism really didn't, you know, didn't, didn't, uh, didn't really start until a couple of years later. Um, and so, yeah, this was, you know, this was sort of, uh, you know, this was sort of laughed at. Like there was, you know, Congressman making jokes, you know, sort of trolling on the House floor. But it actually passes. And some people did actually, you know, vote for it in, in good faith. Um, and so at the beginning, the EEOC um, doesn't even pay attention to this. They say this is, you know, we're not going to even enforce this because all we care about is, you know, helping black people. That's what this, you know, whole civil rights thing was supposed to be about. Um, and then eventually it becomes, OK, you can't discriminate against women. Just basically you can't say, like, this is a man's job and this is a woman's job before this. Like there was a you knew you'd pick up a newspaper and that's how people got jobs. And there would be like a man section and a woman section. They'd say like a man looking to do this and a woman looking to do this. Like the government, like, you know, didn't allow that anymore. Um, and then it doesn't become really until the 1980s where it's like sexual harassment, like how you treat a female employee, right? Because it's not obvious that that's like under the definition of like not discriminating. So I mean, look, if you just hit on a woman and even if like, you know, you're, you're aggressive about it, um, it, it was like, that wasn't something that federal law, you know, the woman can quit the job. That's not something federal law was doing. That's not discrimination against women. That's just like trying to hit on one woman. Right. And, and, and that's not working out for you or her not liking it. But then the courts, you know, they start to change that. They, they start first by saying, OK, you can't have quick protocol. The boss can't say, oh, uh, you know, have sex with me or, you know, you're not going to be fired. So that's like seen as discrimination against women. And then it expands to like um, if a woman feels like uncomfortable and it doesn't even have to be the boss. If a fellow employee, right, uh, harasses women, if like customers, you know, do something that potentially makes a woman uncomfortable. And, you know, like what is and the standard is it has to be severe and uh, pervasive. Right. Now, what does severe and pervasive mean? You know, there's a law professor named Eugene Bullock who said this leads to zero tolerance because like an employer can't say, OK, you can only make a joke if it's not like everyone else is making a joke. Right. Because the employer can't monitor everybody. So the employer has to say, uh, you know, you have to sort of police people's speech. When James Damore was fired at Google, um, you know, the, one of the justifications was they had to fire him. Uh, because he said women, you know, might not be naturally as inclined to go into certain fields. And this could create an uncomfortable uh, uh, climate for women. Now, like in a free society, like a business could say that a business, I mean, like a business, I think, should have the right to say, uh, you know, we're going to be woke on uh, on gender issues. You know, and you can't like talk about, uh, you know, uh, sex differences between men and women. Like I'm fine with, um, you know, businesses being able to do that. But that becomes, you know, the required standard. You have sort of this intellectual ideas that become like, you know, enforced upon the entirety of the private sector. And this is, you know, just the influence of uh, civil rights law. Mm-hmm. And, and what was crazy to me is, is how quickly the number of HR staff sort of skyrocketed after these things became uh, like more, more structured. Right. And um, like, I think, cause like before, before this stuff, like there weren't, HR wasn't a major profession. Like, I think it was like what, under 1% of the Sorry, it was like like it wasn't even one percent of the workforce, and now it's like one percent. Is is that the correct stat? Uh, yeah. Let me uh, let me actually let me let me find it in my book. Yeah, I have a nice a very nice chart on this, um, which shows just the growth of HR uh, over time. Uh, let me see here. Uh, yeah, so it becomes um, you know it becomes like I think it's now like one or two percent of the workforce. It doesn't start out one or two percent. Uh, it gets there. 
Um, but you can see the numbers. The numbers go up, and they, you know, the, the, basically the job doesn't exist in the 1950s. Um, and then it becomes like you know, it's it's multiple, you know, multiplies by like an order of magnitude. <clears throat> and you know, uh, Goldwater, when voting against Civil Rights Act, said that you know this is going to set up a system where there's going to be neighbor informing on neighbor, businessman on businessman. And I say he was right, um, but the government outsourced it to the private sector, which is what they did with a lot of the civil rights stuff. You know, you had to have sort of an HR department just to manage, you know, manage people's like how they date and how they interact with each other and like how one race deals with the other. Uh, yeah, I got the, it's like 1.5% of women are now in HR uh, of the workforce. And before 1970, it was like less than 0.2%, right? And then the entire, uh, uh, the entire workforce, men and women, it goes, yeah, from like, you know, less than you know, 0.2% of the workforce to like 1% of the workforce, right? So the 1% of workforce is managing, you know, the other, the rest of the workforce. That's, this is all jobs. 1% doesn't sound a lot, but like a lot, but obviously uh, when you're talking about all jobs in the country, uh, that is, you know, that is a big deal. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this was, uh, you know, this was a creation of the civil rights regime. Sometimes it was more explicit, like, you know, like Title IX during the Obama years, they just told like, universities uh what they had to like who they had to hire you need more title line coordinators and they went and did that and you know the universities became uh worse of all but you know it's it's not there's sociologists who i cite who say this who say that hr was basically created by civil rights law yeah i think that's and that, that kind of like it's kind of like a consequence of the demographic engineering and in this case the demographic that, that they engineered was a job market right they created a job market for hr just based on the law itself which is absolutely insane so you know next time people are wondering oh why are all these hr people killing the mood. Well, that's why. Um, and then, you know, with, um, like, I think one thing that some of us have noticed, especially during 2020, is that there were people getting, like, fired for off-the-clock statements. Like, someone would say, like, yeah, I think BLM is silly for X, Y, and Z reasons. Like, they would make a Facebook post. And then the next day, they would get an email from their job saying, oh, you have been fired for being anti-BLM. So, like, is that, is it fair to link that to harassment law or or some of the things that we've discussed so far? Or or would we, or, or would that be, like, a separate phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, it's all, re- I mean, it's all related. And sometimes, you know, this stuff ebbs and flows within the cultural context, right? So yeah, 2020 was crazy. And it went beyond, you know, what civil rights law required. Um, I think the you know, way to understand it is sort of there's this, this like, you know, this permanent bureaucracy of HR people and then DEI, which is a spinoff of HRs, particularly in universities and government. Um, and then they're sort of there to be activated and like, you know, when, when country goes crazy, like they did in the summer of Floyd in, uh, 2020, um, those people are there, uh, and able to sort of, you know, shift the, uh, uh, you know, shift, you know, push things in their preferred direction and it gets crazier and crazier. It's sort of like when it, you know, and then like when things calm down, like two years later, they say, wait a minute, why do we, did we need all these DEI, you know, officers, there's a story in the, uh, Wall Street Journal uh, a month or two ago about how, you know, the DEI industry, it's a bust. Like eventually they realize maybe we don't need these people. It's sort of like an arms race too, because like you don't want to be the one corporation that's doing less than everyone else. So there's, you know, there's, it's a, there's a way that it just sort of, it, it's always, uh, you know, the, the pressure is always there. There's sort of, you know, it's sort of like an invisible hand pushing you in sort of the work direction. Um, but yeah, I mean, a way to understand this is those, there's like this background sort of structure of incentives and then like the cultural shifts, like something happens, like the, you know, the Floyd killing, and then it goes in, you know, it, it just goes haywire. That makes sense. And I think, and I think, you know, cases like that, they kind of show the real trade-off that exists between laws like these and some, and some other things that people value, like our, like our first amendment free speech rights. Like, you know, can we talk, can we talk more about some of those trade-offs? Like, you know, how, 
how some of these laws undermine other rights in the Constitution that Americans might hold dear? Yeah, I mean, the way you look at it, I mean, there are, you know, there are almost there are, it's hard to think of a right that has not been threatened by civil rights. Right. I mean, the, you know, free, free speech, we talked about you know, harassment, we talked about uh, James Damore, right? Um, you know, just freedom of association, right? Like, just you want to be able to, you know, hang out with the people who want to hang out. Freedom of religion. This is always fought. They're always, you know, the uh, leftist legal scholars that ever are always trying to apply civil rights. Uh, you know, there, there's debates. What's a, you know, what what is a religious institution that's therefore protected and which is like, you know, close to a religion, but like, or what is a secular business and like, when can you force people to do things that go against their faith? Um, you know, I have this list of like things that Eugene Volokh, the uh, UCLA law professor, says that uh, have been, you know, have been considered, uh, you know, potential violations of civil rights law, right? So, you, like, using the word "men working" on a sign could be like harassment potentially, right? Draftsmen using foremen, even the EEOC, when it gives it gives like its guidance, it has like you can go to their webpage right now, and you could see that they say, you know, jokes like when in doubt, keep it out of the workforce. Like the EEO, there's a federal government agency. Telling you know, regulating your jokes, um, telling you which ones you can make and which ones you can't. Um, you know, and they're they're saying take a basically a zero tolerance policy, uh, and so it's not really separable. I mean, like, you know, I, people are sometimes they're confused. They're like, oh, uh, libertarians, um, you know, like li- you know, th- this is like non libertarian, right? Uh, to want to go after civil rights law and like, there's people who believe in the old Reagan conservative. I told you, I just told you about Reagan and like how he wasn't like. You know, he wasn't like one of these people who wanted to uh, roll over uh, to the left on these issues. He was very right wing by even by today's standards on this stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, there's it, this is part of a broader project to just sort of, you know, bring more freedom to people and restore their rights that have been taken away over the last 50, 60 years. Yep. I think you hit upon that fairly well. And like, you know, it, what, if anything, can be done to make harassment law less invasive and more reasonable? And if and if that's not possible, like, you know, how do we how do we roll back some of these excesses so it's um, not invading on our other rights? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, the, the legal sort of, you know, the, the sort of, the, you know, the, there's always like boundary cases, right? The law is always moving in one direction uh, or the other. So people who are interested in sort of the, you know, the... Um, uh, the sort of nuances of uh, harassment law can go into it. I think, you know, the government could, you know, this happens. Like the Republican, you know, when Republicans came into office, they got rid of the Title IX kangaroo courts, which was a lot of, behind a lot of the basis for the broad definition of harassment and assault that universities were using. So some of this stuff now just changes. Like when a Republican administration comes in, they do one thing, and a Democratic administration comes in, they do another thing for the last, you know, at least since uh, Obama. You know, there was differences between Clinton and Bush too, but they were more uh, settled now with the general polarization. It's a, a more of a, a large shift uh, depending on which uh, party uh, is in power. Um, and so, yeah, there is always sort of, you know, there's always sort of on the edge cases. One thing you want to do overall sort of thinking about the practicality, not just like thinking in terms of like what the law says or what the court decision, what a court decision says. One thing you want to do is sort of make this area of law less profitable because there's like just so many, uh, uh, there's just so many, you know, lawyers and they're, you know, they're, they're going where, you know, the profits are and where they can have the biggest impact and where they can make the most money. And, you know, everything that makes a civil rights case uh, of this kind harder to win or harder to establish standing or like, you know, limits the monetary uh, incentives. Um, and, then, you know, I talk about some of the details here in the book. Anything, anything uh, in those terms is worth doing. Sorry, I was muted. Um, so real quick, everyone, um, 
I wanted to direct everyone to the Jumbotron. So I pinned two tweets linking to Richard's um, book that's coming out. It will be released soon. So if everybody wants to take a quick second and pre-order, that would be greatly appreciated. And, you know, uh, please give Richard a follow. He is up on the stage right now. Oh, so, totally. Yeah, it's, it's not just through Tuesday. So you'll get it the other day after tomorrow. If you order the Kindle Audible, you'll get it, you know, in like not, that much longer than 24 hours from now. And then the book, I think they ship the book when it comes out. I don't know if you will pre-order today. Does the book arrive on that day? I don't know. But you'll get it, you know, Amazon within two days if you order the hard copy. Yeah, something like that. I'm sure it'll be there within the, within the week, give or take. Uh, <laughs> and you know, and I and, and I can vouch for this book, guys. Like you know, I've I've you know I've been talking about wokeness for the better part of the last year since I became active on X, and and a lot of people like they just complain about wokeness, and there's very little solutions being offered. And you know, Richard does dive into this as you've heard him during this conversation. So um, last but not least, I want to you know talk uh, spend some time talking about Title Nine, give it some dedicated airtime. So um, you in the book, like you kind of describe it as regulating the private romantic and sex lives of students and athletes so can we uh can we like talk, discuss what that means and what you meant with that statement uh yeah i mean so title you know title nine and this was worse under the obama administration um but you know they you know they sit there and they tell people um you know you you know how you can basically help you know, and what conditions you can have sex right it becomes like you know consent and this is a standard that universities had to adopt which is beyond what any state uh, you know adopted which is like you have to consent every step of the way i mean i don't think anybody's sex life ever ever worked like this i mean it was always sort of uh you know it was always sort of in theory but like you know men's lives were destroyed over this and i don't know if you're old enough to remember this but i remember the obama administration i mean i had friends of friends it was like so common for like a, a man to just have like a drunk one you know one night stand and often like the women won't even remember what happened i mean there were some crazy stories or like the women will say she like initiated it but because she was drunk and she's a woman and she didn't like it later i mean the details of these are just absolutely uh shocking um and you know they regulate i, I say that you know one part of the book i say they uh, the government regulates sports and sexuality it's just very very sort of weird Thing. So like Title IX, like some some uh, uh, schools go, okay, we have cheerleading. Um, you know, that's those are female athletes. They'll say cheerleading. That's too feminine. <laughs> the girls, you know, they don't say the exact word, but the girl, it has to be more competitive. You have to make them like sports like men like. Well, you know, what a woman like. Okay, rowing, I guess, works. Volleyball works. People like watching women's volleyball for obvious reasons. I think women's volleyball just broke a record in Nebraska or something for like indoor uh, events. So people like women's volleyball, but that's something they go to, right? But it, there's just not a lot of women who want to do these kind of, you know, male sports, or at least not as many as men uh right but like no it becomes and oh, oh yeah by the way it's not just colleges this is high schools too i mean there was a seventh circuit court where they uh uh where i tweeted about it it's in the book where you know they said you know it's uh, you know it's potentially against title nine to schedule the boys basketball game on friday and the girls basketball game on wednesday uh because the boy will have a bigger crowd and this is discrimination against you know against title nine Right. They didn't rule that was discrimination, but it could at least you could sue the school based on that. And if the school went and said, you know, pe more people want to watch the boys basketball, you know, some, just some school in Indiana, like who cares? Uh, they say, nope, this is, you know, this is stereotypes. This is discrimination. <laughs> this violates the law. And so they're, I mean, they're petty. They're just, they're just so like, you know, they have these ideas that like these radical ideas that come out of the academy, like men and women are the same or they should be the same, that like nobody would ever pass and like it wouldn't go through Congress and be signed by the president. It's not the role of government to do this, these things. 
uh, they do it through civil rights law, right? As long as nobody's looking. And so like, yeah, this is, this is sort of, yeah, this is just, a, I, I, you know, I want to just bring home to people the radicalness of it as far as like, in terms of, you know, our freedoms are, you know, just sort of like just what the role of government should be um, in the United States, in a free country like the United States is. Um, and I don't think not even liberals, I think, you know, if an honest liberal, I think, reads the book and sees sort of the implications, maybe they will like it. I don't know. Maybe I'm giving them too much credit. But I think, you know, they rarely explicitly say that this is the role they want for government and society. Yeah, I mean, at least in my case, and I've I've spent a lot of time in deep blue areas like um the liberals that I've encountered and my friends who are liberal, like, you know, a lot of them think that like a lot of them think that it's just preventing like raw discrimination. Like a lot of them aren't aware of disparate impact and the implications. Like I think the branding um, of, of these laws has been so well done that people are just confused as to what they actually entail. So I think part of the battle is not just overturning that, but, um, but, but undoing the, the deceitful branding that's been done over the decades. Yeah, you're right. Like, I think they had this sort of, they had this sort of wave that the, the civil rights movement was like, people were thinking they were going to stop Jim Crow. And, you know, they did. And uh, it was just like sort of this halo around this movement that like, you know, all, you know, educated people thought was like a great thing. And then it was often like the very same people who were like, you know, about pushing for civil rights started to, you know, the, you know, classic civil rights, the kind that was codified in the Civil Rights Act of 64, it was those things, sometimes the, like either the exact same organizations or literally the exact same individuals who started pushing for quotas and affirmative action and uh, disparate impact. So, you know, people didn't want to really challenge them. Um, and, you know, you could always call it civil rights. I think that, like, this is why, like, Republicans were so bad on this issue for so long, because there was no really conservative media to explain things to people. So it was just like, oh, Reagan is racist and the Democrats are not racist. And that was that sort of became like, the you know, the perception of what was happening. Now, you know, some, some people, you know, have said like, oh, this book, you know, by focusing on civil rights. Law, I don't focus on the civil. I think focusing on the Civil Rights Act is probably bad, um, uh, bad PR. Uh, it, because it's, um, you know, the Civil Rights Act people understand, you know, sort of what that did. But when you say civil rights law, you're it's sort of making explicitly clear that it's not about the Civil Rights Act. Um, and by just like, you know, it, it is just this sort of what's grown around it, right? It, maybe it's the root, but like, you know, you could even you could even say, well, the, you know, the original Civil Rights Act, you could agree with it or disagree with it. We could say that's not what this is. This is an outgrowth uh, of it. And if you could, you know, Rufo talks about this too, if you could connect it to like these crazy people say, no, like, you know, you clearly hate Kendi and you clearly think Robin D'Angelo and all these, you know, crazy professors are, you know, they're uh, wrong about these things. Um, if you could connect it to civil rights, I'll say, no, it's just, it's just, they're just sort of the, the personal manifestations uh, of what this, uh, of what the law says. I think that's, you know, that's powerful. And I, you know, I think that like, you know, I don't think calling it civil rights laws like, you know, a PR, you know, the, is, it makes it actually harder. I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's like, you know, I think there's, you know, a lot of potential there. I think people are ready to listen that, you know, something has gone wrong. Like, I, I remember, like, I did a poll once, you know, asking my followers, like, oh, did you know that this is how affirmative action worked? And then I cited the Harvard data. And like, even amongst my followers, like, it was like 30% of them were unaware. And like, and at the time, I had about 300,000 followers. Um, and I think 30,000 responded to the poll. So just in that poll, there were like 10,000 people who just um, got saw new data on affirmative action that they hadn't seen before. And if you generalize that to the entire audience, it's like 100,000 people worth, right? So it, it's it's just crazy, like, you know, how much um, um, how much the, the true nature of these things has been obscured by the establishment. Um, 
And I, I want to circle back to Title IX and get and get some final thoughts there. Like you know, the, the, um, we've we've kind of touched on the ping pong back and forth between the Obama and Trump administrations. You know, um, and what was interesting about Title IX is that the Obama regulations, like um, if I remember correctly, they weren't like hard set laws. Like it was more like the Obama administration gave like some soft recommendations, and and there was kind of like social pressure to co- to go along with them. And then Trump came and sort of rolled those back. Like can we? Um, can we like talk a little bit more about those and then what can be done to make title nine more reasonable um, and not as uh, well uh, in the bedroom, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, they were dear colleague letters and it's very interesting because there was no, like they never actually pulled funding from universities. It was just, I think like the universities were just ripe for this craziness because, you know, it's killed both, you know, crazy leftists. So they were, you know, very sort of eager to go along the sports stuff actually, because it affected the bottom line, that, that stuff, that was subject of lawsuits in the 1990s. The universities fought uh, to preserve, you know, some of their wrestling programs and stuff they lost in the courts, uh, but they did fight those things in the 1990s. But, you know, by, but I think that just what changed, I think the, you know, I think it was just sort of the, this was a chance to grow the bureaucracy just because of the ideal ideology I think that that's what sort of uh, made the Obama administration uh, uh, such a t- you know a time of such craziness and sort of t- uh, sort of uh, uh, chaos in sort of universities and what was going on at the time. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's just a story that you know I think it was in the uh, it was in the Times I think a few days ago that the Biden you know what the Biden administration is trying to do is um, uh, this wasn't just in the Times this has been known for a while they're trying to make it into a federal rule a rule is like more like what the Obama administration did was they sent your colleague letters which is just interpretation of the law. A rule is like somewhere between that and like actual legislation. A rule is like a little bit more official, a little bit harder to get rid of. Um, And so they're trying to sort of make it permanent, but it would like all it would do is like make it, you know, if the Trump administration or whatever Republican administration was focused um, that it would just like delay them in a few months, right, in pulling it back while the dear colleague letter they could do uh, immediately. Uh, so yeah, I think like the the, the permit the, the you know so it's, there's this ping pong. The source of permanent change is the courts because the courts can just say this you can do and this you can't, and you can't just come into administration. You know, you, you appoint judges when a new administration comes, but you have to you know you, have, you still have you know the case law and and the, all of that. Uh, so yeah, I mean I think we're going to see the ping pong going back and forth for a while. Uh, I think Republicans have to be a little more aggressive here. I love the executive order on uh, critical race theory. It would be on like what they're used to because, you know, there's going to be a lot of pushback in the other direction with Democrats coming power. I do think though that like we might maybe underestimate like maybe the pink box out there because I point to, you know, a lot of evidence that the uh, the law, you know, that the uh, public opinion is not with liberals on a lot of this stuff like affirmative action. So just keeping something is, you know, is easier than putting something anew. So like if they had to build this regime from scratch, uh, if the Biden administration did, there would be a lot of resistance and there would be a lot of, you know, uh, there would be a lot of coverage and, you know, backlash to it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the courts are the most, it's like the boringest advice ever. Like you need the president and you need to win the election in 2024 if you don't like this stuff. You need to win the Senate. Um, you need to have a, uh, you know, a, a guy like Mitch McConnell who's focused on confirming as many judges as possible. Um, the quality of the judges, quality in terms of like ruling the right way, I think that battle has been won. I mean, not many, uh, you know, suitors are, 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 are uh, even O'Connors are, you know, slipping through the cracks anymore. They're, they, you know, they tend to be pretty conservative on these things. And then just, you know, bringing it to people's attention and, you know, getting, uh, you know, through uh, discussions like this, through my book, uh, through people like staying on top of it, you know, when next time this Republican administration, you know, you should want to, uh, you know, you should want, you should know which like agencies are important. And 
look, I mean, I, it's going to reach the conservative legal community. My book is, is reaching them. I know, you know, people who, uh, you know, are the most important people in, in the conservative movement as far as legal, even if this book doesn't sell, you know, any copies or barely any copies, it's going to reach people in the conservative legal movement and those people will be clerks and they'll be judges. Uh, so, you know, I think good things will probably be happening. Absolutely. And uh, real quick, like I noticed that, you know, we have some mutual acquaintances in the audience. Like, um, you know, do you know if any of them would like to come up and join the conversation, Richard? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, mean we, I guess we could just open it up. I mean, if, if anybody, if we, we'll, we'll maybe prioritize the uh, guys we advertised, Brian, Philippe, uh, Cremieux. But if anyone wants, I mean, I'm fine with taking from anyone. Sure, absolutely. Um, so like, if anybody wants to ask questions, I think we'll take a few. Um, go ahead and request speaker on the bottom left, and I'll rotate a few guys. And then um, before we get into the Q&A portion, um, Richard, like, um, I, after, you know, from skimming the audience, like, I see a few people, you know, who are passionate about citizen journalism, and they want to really leverage their platforms on X. Like, what are some tips you have for people like them who are passionate about fighting back on wokeness? Um, to, for, for, as far as leveraging their platform on X to fight back against wokeness, I, you know, I think that, like, you know, there's pretty, it's pretty obvious. I, you know, I think that, like, if, you know, if you want to get attention, I think it's easier to point to, like, the crazy stuff that's going on in the news. Um, the actually paying attention to the law, like my book is like filling a niche that's like not it's not it's not a saturated market at all. So if you have some like interest in law or some like deeper knowledge of the news and you can bring it to people, uh, you know, you can get you could get some attention for that. And, you know, you can either you can follow me and you can get that stuff from me or if you do you know research on your own. Um, I think, you know, that, that market, again, is far from saturated. You could you could, you could uh, get influenced that way. And I really want to, I want to emphasize the last thing Richard said, like, um, no matter, like the market really isn't super saturated, like, you know, even myself, like, you know, who I spent a long time talking about affirmative action, even amongst my followers, like, a bunch of them did not know how that stuff worked, you know, before they found my page. So there's a lot of messaging to be done on that front. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes for other issues, too. Like, you know, good quality, like analysis is not, you know, especially in this area, but in a lot of areas, you know, we could use more of that. Yep, absolutely. Cool. Um, so I brought up one person so far, um, Health Uncensored. Go ahead and unmute and ask your question. Hey, everyone. Thanks for allowing me to come up and speak. Um, it's a very interesting topic. I'm looking forward to reading your book. Um, in your opinion, you. do you think this can be can be undone um, with a majority vote You know, by using the current political system we have in place? Or do you think that the 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 push of, of woke going on in the country is beyond government as far as corporations and, and, you know, billionaires and, and the people really pulling the strings behind the politicians. Oh, I'll do you better. You don't even need a majority vote. Uh, me, Trump didn't get a majority in uh, uh, 2016, uh, even though he thinks he thinks he did a minority vote. I mean, is enough to get into power and winning the Senate, and you know, you don't even have to get a majority of the votes in the country. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the uh, that's one of the sort of the themes of the book. Like, yes, like these laws have downstream effects. What I want to warn people against is thinking that. Um, you know, you're going to like change the culture overnight. You know, I, it took a long time to get from wokeness's law to sort of this crazy culture that we have now. I don't know if it'll take just as long to go back in the other direction, but like, it's not going to be cultural change takes a while. So like, be patient, like if laws change and like nothing happens, not, not that much needs to happen. Now it seems to be moving like faster than I would have thought, like the affirmative action case and a few other things, like it, it might actually be more rapid, but like if it, if nothing seems to be happening for, or very little seems to be happening for five, 10 years. Yeah. Don't be shocked or don't lose hope. It just, it took a long time to get here and it may take a long time to get back. 
thank you, Richard. And then thank you, Halton Censored. I'm going to rotate you for someone else. Um, let's see. And then I'm going to bring up Nadine. Um, so while Nadine's joining, uh, Jerome Powell, we have the pseudo chairman of the Fed with us. Mm -hmm. Jerome, what do you have for us, dude? Hey, what's up, Richard? What's up, man? I'm Jerome Powell, chairman of the Fed here. Um, when I ask you something real quick, um, do you like my printer? <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. Oh, good. Okay. So, like, a lot of people don't like my printer, so good, good that you like it. Thank you very much. Cool. Um, that weird introduction aside, let's go. Uh, looks like Nadine's having some connection issues. Uh, I'm going to bring up one more person while that's getting resolved. Uh, okay. Uh, poster tubs. Can you hear us? Um, unmute's on the bottom left. Hey, poster tubs. I've seen you around. Uh, poster tubs. Um, the unmute's on the bottom left. Okay. Oh, I don't see. It. He's not. Uh, should he be like? Should he be seen as like? Oh, yeah. Right. yeah on my end, he shows up a speaker, but look, mm, spaces might be glitching. Let me try someone else real quick. Um. Okay. Um, Amina Beck, can you hear us? Yes, actually, I was just in the shower and I was listening to you guys and I cut my shower short so that, that way I could ask this question. And it has uh, a lot to pertain to uh, economic justice or like just economics uh, across the United States versus identity politics. When I think woke, I think identity politics. And just because we are more, you know, cognizant of the fact that you know there's diversity doesn't mean that that this is solving the root of the issue which is uh, basically rooted in the economic injustice that a lot of the um, working and ordinary Americans are going through right now so I just kind of wanted to bring that up um, maybe just as a comment uh, I don't really know how to phrase it as a question but the fact that I got out of my shower early I had to say it <laughs> Okay, well, I mean, it's not really the topic about the book, but yeah, we appreciate the comment. Yep. Okay, uh, but the you. thing is, like, if you're not focusing on that, then... Yep. Yep, sorry about that, guys. Um, like, if you are going to ask a question, please do try to stay on topic. Um, so I'm going to go to Poster Tubs right now. So go ahead and unmute Poster Tubs. Hey, can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Thank you for joining okay. us. Hey, it's, it's an honor to be here. So um, obviously a big theme of the book and a lot of Richard's writings are the idea that wokeness is actually a creation from the, the mid-60s to early 70s. But what are your thoughts on, I guess, the – and that's a, distinct, a distinction between it and the theory that, oh, wokeness is a creation from the early 2010s. But I've been thinking about this. And what are your – what is your opinion on, I guess, the sea sailor theory that um, the cultural wokeness is actually um, was actually pushed more by the Obama administration? And do you think that it's just it is distinct from the you know civil rights law, or do you think that it is a worthy early 2010 thing? I'm not talking about like civil woke law, but I'm talking about the cultural push. So there's many pieces here. Um, the culture and the law are just, you know, one of the themes of the book is they're sort of, 
you know, they're intertwined. So it depends on what you're thinking of. You know, if you're thinking of, like, I have my definition of wokeness, but it has, you can break it down into components. So the disparate impact stuff, this Kendi coming around and saying, oh, your tests are racist and your, you know, punctuality is racist and all these things. That's so, you know, that's very old, just becoming a little bit more uh, obnoxious. Um, there were some things that the Obama administration did completely new. Um, and yeah, Saylor talks about this and other people talk about this, um, that, you know, the title nine, and I talk about it in my book, you know, the title nine stuff, the rape kangaroo courts completely, I mean, completely new. There was nothing, there was it wasn't really building on, you know, on anything. There was nothing like this before. I mean, you kids had sex and, you know, they even, even in like the late nineties and the, you know, during the Bush administration, um, that wasn't, you know, much of a concern to the federal government. Uh, and so that was new. And this was sort of like, you know, like if you're sort of like if you're interested in the cultural history, sort of like, you know, Scott Alexander has a good uh, article on sort of like the Tumblr wars, like the feminism, like being like about the early days of like Tumblr and like uh, message boards and like social media and like these sort of crazy feminists like radicalizing each other. A lot of this sort of discourse, like, you know, these websites like Gawker, a lot of this, you know, discourse, um, uh, you know, was seeping into the government. The government is part of you know, the government is part of society, you know, the government bureaucrats read the media and they see what's going on. And, you know, it's like, and it feeds into itself. So like, the, you know, the government collects the data, that data, you know, that you used to see that said like, oh, 20% of women are raped or sexually assaulted. Uh, you know, that was justified, but that was collected by like ideologues within the government who had like ridiculous definitions of rape or sexual assault, but that became a, you know, a story in the media and it sort of led to this hysteria. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the trans stuff was new. This was the, you know, this was the Obama administration. Obviously, there was nothing like that before. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there, there was, there is a, you know, it depends on what you're talking about. That, you know, every, you know, really every uh, era has its sort of own innovations. It's sort of like a, you know, like a, like a Jenga or like a Lego. Set. Jenga is like implies that it's fragile, but it's like a Lego set, right? Where each like you just build something else. It's the same foundational base. Um, and yeah, the Obama administration did have a role to play. Probably, you know, the Clinton administration did it. It's, it's sort of interesting. Clinton administration was probably, um, you know, like probably did less than other administrations. I think the Obama was one of the most, you know, was one of the worst on this. Um, and then the Trump administration and Reagan were some of the best. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just been building over time. Thank you very much. Uh, would you say BLM is newer or is it a continuation of some of these older more fringe uh, civil rights era talking points that some of these people espoused. It is, you know, it's so similar. It's just the same, it's the same nonsense. It's like blacks are not as rich as whites. Uh, blacks are arrested for more crime than whites. Uh, the system is rigged. Like criminals are like actually innocent. You go back to the 60s and 70s. I mean, it's it's very similar. Now BLM has a stylistic difference. You know, it's more like explicit, you know, anti-police. It's it's like, it's more gay. I mean, there's so, like so many lesbians like in the founding and, you know, earlier generations of black radicals didn't have that. Uh, but it's, you know, especially, on, I think the gender stuff, there has been like change over time. I just talked about Title IX and like the trans stuff, the gay stuff. There's at least like innovation there. We're inventing new genders and, and new weird stuff. But the race stuff, man, the race stuff is old. The race stuff is just eternal reoccurrence. We're, we're doing the same thing over and over. Yeah, thanks a lot. Mm -hmm. Thanks for the time. Um, next up was New Ledford. Can you hear us? Yeah, I hear you. Uh, great discussion. I appreciate it. Uh, what can be done on a, a state government or a local government level to address this, if anything? 
Oh, excellent question. I mean, there are, you know, the state, the state governments, a lot of times they have, uh, you know, it's, it's synergistic. So like in North Carolina, the Board of Regents there, because the government, you know, even though the governor is a uh, Democrat now, the state legislature is controlled by Republicans and Republicans have a lot of uh, power in North Carolina. Um, they've been gone farther than most after the affirmative action case after they lost. So, you know, when the state can, when the state is in accord with sort of, you know, these ideas, a lot can happen. I mean, Texas is just very, it's very... Um, you know, it's just sort of very, uh, you could just, you know, it's very, uh, it's not like a subtle thing. They just said, no more DEI offices. We're going to close them down. Uh, Greg Abbott's executive order uh, within the last few months got rid of, uh, you know, a diversity hiring, um, you know, affirmative action hiring in the gov- state government of Texas. Now, I said that Republicans, I, I said on Twitter, Republicans have been in control of Texas governor for 30 years, right? The guy just did it. You know, the guy just did it now. And so, like, this stuff is happening. Um, you know, you, these, you, a lot of these grievance studies, you know, I mean, the, the state, the state uh, university budget is from the state. I mean, uh, the, you know, obviously. I think in Tennessee they've done some cool things where they've uh, decided to, like, uh, not fund as much some of the uh, – and, you know, of course, DeSantis, so what he's doing in Florida – um, they decided in Tennessee, I think, to not like support students who were going into certain fields that were, you know, not uh, not uh, bringing a much of a return on investment. Uh, and so I do have I do. You know, I, I think the federal courts are the most important thing. But I do have some discussion of what the states can do. I mean, there is there is a lot there. I appreciate it. Yeah. How much of this do you think is is bottom up or how much of it is, is exploiting opportunities that uh, come from above, from federal court decisions or uh, uh, executive orders, et cetera? You know, it's, 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 it's really both. I think that, like, I think the interesting thing about the top, bottom, I think it's more, you know, I think that it's worth focusing on the law because the bottom up is, like, people get excited, like this George Floyd stuff, or, like, people, like, there's movements. But unless it becomes institutionalized in law or you, like, start a new bureaucracy or you have a new government office, like, people's attentions shift um, and then, you know, they move on to something else. They really don't have the power to enforce, you know, the only way you enforce things over a long term is through legal changes. And so it incorporate, you know, you have this like, you know, you have all this stuff going on in the culture, the things that become law end up having lasting influence. Uh, so, so you can't put an exact number on it. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I really stress the top down nature of this in the book. So what, what you need are, are lawyers, an army of lawyers. Basically. Unfortunately, yeah. It'd be nicer if we, you know, if we had a society where, uh, you know, great warriors. Maybe be more romantic. Yeah, but it's, it's you know, it's about having your lawyers and bureaucrats beat their lawyers and bureaucrats, which also really comes down to elections. You know, being good government and appointing the right people. Yeah, it's trench warfare. Is World War One, not World War Two. So that's how I see it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Cool. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. And then I believe next up was Lily Tang. Can you hear us, Lily? Uh, Lily, the unmute is on the bottom left if you're having trouble. Okay, um, while Lily's getting that started, let's try uh, Sadan uh, Doom. Um, go ahead. Hi, yeah, so, so, Sadan and Doom. Uh, congratulations, Richard, uh, on the book. I have bought my copy. Um, I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, Thank you, Sadan. You know, I guess my, my, my question is that, you know, a lot of the people here, I think, would, I think it's fair to say we would share your basic moral intuitions on these questions, right? The unfairness of affirmative action, the absurdity of some of the Title IX stuff on sex and so on. But how would you sort of, if you were kind of explaining to someone who doesn't necessarily share your moral intuitions, let's just say, uh, you know, a, a, a liberal Democrat who 
doesn't pay a lot of attention to this stuff and says to you, well, Richard, we've had this stuff for about 50 years, if not a little bit longer. And America has made great progress in these last 50 years. We have the most innovative companies in the world. We're much richer than the Europeans. It's something that you sort of talk about. The free market system has delivered a great amount of prosperity. Uh, it's a relatively peaceful society and so on and so forth. So why should we, and if that person were to ask you, why should we care about this? What would your answer be? Uh, good question, Sadat, and I'm glad to finally, you know, after interacting with you so long on Twitter, glad to finally hear your voice. Um, maybe you saw uh, Brian's, uh, Brian Chow, uh, he had a, um, I tweeted out his um, uh, review of the book, and he, he makes a similar argument, All right? And so there's, you know, two things there. There's uh, convincing liberals of your argument, just good on its own sake, and then convincing them, you know, it's important enough uh, to rock the boat. I mean, I think convincing them that it's like a good thing or, you know, not that uh, you know, at least not that terrible to do these things. It's just sort of, I think, you know, I think, I think stressing the blank, um, you know, just like I, I, maybe this doesn't work for all liberals, actually. But I guess I, I'm a conservative because I believe in the conservative arguments that like markets are actually great, and like there's been groups that have suffered discrimination throughout history, and they've done and they've done fine. And like if you you know think, if you're so woke and you think you know there's all this discrimination start your own business, maybe that doesn't work on the left. I guess if liberals believe that, they would be conservatives. Um, but trying to sort of do it like with you know w- within the liberal confines, that I find hard because uh, just off the top of my head, because so much of liberalism is sort of wrapped up in sort of this, you know, wokeness, the idea of disparate impact being this uh, uh, giant horror. Um, as far as your other argument of it not being that bad, yeah, this is my friend uh, Brian uh, made that argument. Um, and I think, like, you know, maybe it's not in my incentive to say, like, I, I sort of do think that, like, you know, you, we can exaggerate, it's possible to exaggerate the impact of wokeness. You know, I think I would rather have wokeness than, like, you know, European-style labor laws. I mean, maybe, maybe. Um, but... Uh, you know, I think, you know, one thing liberals do worry about and conservatives worry about and people of all kinds worry about is sort of like the division in this country and just how much we hate each other. Um, and I do, th- you know, I do make a case in the book that that's related to these like cultural matters. Like why is, you know, trans, you know, which bathroom trans students use like a federal issue that like the president is going to determine or, you know, court's going to uh, determine, you know, why is um you know, like, you know, why is the government basically telling institutions, you know, what to hire, what to do? I mean, it's really, I think that a lot of this stuff is just like, you know, the affirmative action, I think, has sort of always been, you know, why did whites start voting, uh, you know, Republican, um, you know, after the, uh, you know, after, you know, after after the Johnson administration, I think maybe at every every election they voted for the Republican candidate states or almost every election. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's because they realize that they're being discriminated against. If you think affirmative action is not doing all that much, maybe you think it's doing a lot. Uh, it's a terrible price to pay because I think there's just a sort of an idea that the Democratic Party's anti-white male. I think in the 1990s, this was like more explicit, like there was more reflection on this, like, you know, uh, like going into the Clinton administration. Uh, but, you know, liberals have become sort of more dogmatic on these matters and just think, well, that, that must be mean they're racist. Well, I think a couple of decades ago, they thought, oh, maybe like, you know, there's a way that you could at least understand why people would think that. Uh, so, yeah, I do think there's, you know, there's a conservative argument that like markets are good and freedom is good. Um, and then there's the sort of argument of like, let's just take let's just depoliticize this stuff. Like, why do we fight? over you know, when you have like this is, you know, when we have, uh, you know, I want to privatize education and like, you know, nobody cares 
like nobody's like we're not having fights on most like you know we're not having fights about what's in private schools we're having fights about what's in public school libraries we're too diverse of a country i want to decentralize you know everything and you know if liberals can't buy that argument that education should be privatized that we should have a voucher system or uh, universal school choice or whatever um at least you know you tell them when we have public schools um don't make them a battleground all across the country because i don't know how you end up in a place you know one one uh, one side will win an election, then the other side will win an election. We're going to still be hating each other. Something has to be in the school library. And like, either these things are going to get settled at local level or they're going to be a permanent culture war. But I, I mean, just, just, just to follow up, but I don't think we can, I mean, depoliticize it, right? But I mean, what we're really saying, and the people who sort of share your views on this, we're not saying that we don't want to, we don't want to talk about this. We're saying that the things that you've imposed on society are crazy and we want to win. We don't want this craziness to be imposed on society anymore. And so for that, you have to sort of be able to tell those people why we should care that this stuff is crazy beyond like, well, we shouldn't be fighting about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I, it, so you're saying why should we be like convincing them that men and women are actually different and uh, race, you know, the you know, racial disparities don't imply discrimination. Is that what exactly. you're saying? Exactly. Try to, try to yeah. For, yeah. That, that disparate impact is crazy that affirmative action is a really morally bankrupt and harmful um, idea that, uh, you know, that men and women are different. Like a lot of these things that strike a lot of people, a lot of people who follow you as sort of commonsensical. Yeah. Um, so it, it, the, the stakes have to matter at some, pl- at some point, right? Yeah, and I think you're right. And I'm, I'm all for people making substantive arguments along those lines. And I make some of those arguments uh, myself. In this book, what I'm tra- basically talking to Republicans and people, just people of a historical interest in saying how we got here and, you know, people who are interested in doing something about it, you know, what, what to do about it. And I even explain, I think I say explicitly at some point that this is not a book about the, you know, group, the causes of group disparities. You sort of have to, you know, there's a lot of books, you know, there's a lot of books written on that and a lot of scholarship on that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I would just cite the, you know, the normal sources on this, the Charles Murray's and the Thomas Sowell's, I mean, and the every, you know, and like, I think the gender stuff, I think it's better to laugh at than even fight because like, I mean, it, it, you know, it's like, you know, you could, yeah, but come on. I mean, you watch, you watch, you know, nature channels and you see, they say the males are like this, the females like are like that. We're not the only species that are as different. I think sort of, you just have to sort of really just drill home and get to people's common sense on a lot of the gender issues. I don't think some, I saw some, I saw some uh, tweet by uh, this guy named, uh, I think uh, Stuart Steve Williams or something. Who's like always tweeting these science articles. He's like, Oh, you know, 170 articles show men and women are different in like sexual preferences or something like that. I'm like, Oh, you know, I sarcastically said, you know, it was really, you know, the 71st article that convinced me. I'm like, come on, if you need a study to know that, um, you know, you're, you're sort of, you're just, you know, you're engaging in motivated reasoning. So I think for the sex stuff, I think, a lot of it is just sort of common sense and intuition and just you know making regular arguments and the race you know the race and the ethnic uh you know that's sort of a little bit more of a minefield but you know i'd refer to the standard arguments there i don't know i think one thing that's good that i do um that maybe can help here is show the like the arbitrariness of like the racial disparities that we care about and so you see okay there's this thing hispanic was created this thing aapi is a social construct you can look at whites of one ethnic background and show that they're doing much better than whites of the other ethnic background and just like get people to question like this doesn't work for the black i think people know that the black history in america is different but uh, you know a lot of the other racial issues you know really you could just say is this internally consistent like why do you care about these categories and if you could show them the history they i think they could see it's sort of ridiculous 
Awesome. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your question. And my apologies for butchering your name earlier. I want to check in on Lily and see if she was able to resolve her mic issues. Oh, hi. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Hi. Thank hi. You it's, uh, well, I have been talking about this uh, work concept and cancel culture in this country. I survived Mao's cultural revolution, and we had a similar term for workism. And that means uh, you got to be aware um, the society, they were trying to push communism. And so everybody is divided into two giant groups like Marxist um, did. It's oppressor versus oppressed. And Mao then put uh, all the Chinese, because we all look the same pretty much, but into 10 classes, five black classes are supposed to be oppressors and enemies of the people and enemies of the state. We're supposed to hate them. And who were the five black classes? Landlords, rich farmers, rightists, bad influencers, and the county revolutionaries. Some of them sounds pretty subjective. And who defined what is rightist? which is animal of the state, one of the five black classes. It's the China's Communist Party and with Chairman Mao as the supreme leader. And then other classes were red. Red classes include my parents who were workers and poor peasants. And uh, of course, Communist Party officials, cadres, and the heroes and people's liberation army soldiers. So this kind of uh, categories identity politics is nothing new. Mao, his Mao's Cultural Revolution lasted 10 years from 1966 to 1976 when he died, it ended. So I grew up during those 10 years from two to 12. So I was totally brainwashed. I had to be woke. Otherwise, you are not politically correct, and you will be black class, and your family will be subject to all kinds of struggle sessions if you were black class. So today, when you talk about work and DEI, critical race theory, whatever name they come up with, it sure remind me what we heard, what we saw in Mao's China. So I have been talking about this for a long time. And I'm running for Congress in New Hampshire and because I saw the similarities. I'm very terrified, actually, to warn people. Hey, Lily, uh, can we get to a question for Richard? Um, just because just we have other, other requests as well. Thank you. Yep, uh, Lily, you can unmute on the bottom left. Uh, but let's try to get a question for Richard uh, so that way we can uh, get more people up here. Yeah. So, so my question for you, Richard, if, you know, I'm married to a Texan too, if, if Texas is a race state and they've been doing this DEI training in the state government for a long time, like, a, like a, what is, is going on? Did the people really just buy into this uh, um, social justice movement pressure or is there government funding incentives? And so what is going on in Texas even doing this for so many years? Yeah, I think Lily, uh, you know, appreciate hearing your story. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's it, the people really haven't been paying attention. I mean, you know, I, it's like one of those things where if you point out to people, like, you know, it's like they, they'd be shocked, especially Republicans or conservatives. Um, but there was just nobody, like, you know, they we, you know, there's salience. There's only 
a set amount of political attention going around. So, you know, there's war on terror, there's the economy, there's, you know, a million uh, other things. It's becoming like a point now, I think, and this is very, very recent. We're talking, you know, literally since I've been writing about this, uh, where it's just become the default. If you're a Republican, it's like, okay, you're pro-gun rights, right? All Republican states are going to be pro-gun rights. It's becoming the default. Now, it's a little more complicated than just being pro-Second Amendment. You know, it's, there's a lot more there. But everyone, if the salience is raised, like every, like basically the entire conservative movement is united uh, about doing stuff, doing this stuff. So like Texas state government, I don't know if they've had uh, DEI trainings, but I don't think they will in five years. I don't think Alabama will if they've had it before. I expect the red state campuses to become a lot more conservative um, over time. Uh, I just think that's natural. Maybe not. Maybe it's not going to happen at UC Berkeley. Maybe it's not going to happen at Columbia. It might to some extent because of the recent court decision. Uh, but yeah, I think people just need to pay attention. I think these things are indeed changing. But they are in our federal government. They are in our military, and they are in hiring practice by private corporations. This is totally un-American. I mean, equity it's a, it's a communist concept. It's it's not based on a meritocracy, but it's based on some other sins rather than oh. your personal merits. Oh yeah, you're preaching to the choir, Lily. I hope you get into office and you you do something about that. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck to you. Thank Best you. Best of luck, Lily. Thank you for joining us. Sure. Yep. Cool. And then next up, we have uh, Van Buren. Go right ahead. Unmute on the bottom left. Um, I got it. Sorry. There we go. Um, Yeah. So my question, um, a lot of people were very surprised, some of us pleasantly, some not so much, when you survived Matthias's cancellation attempt and were, which a few years ago, you know, might not have been the case. And I'm sort of curious, like what you make of that. Is it a indication that maybe Culturally, things are getting a, a little bit, you know, saner that maybe this whole nonsense has burned itself out a little bit. Um, obviously, there's a lot to do. I agree, you know, with the legal, the legal field. And um, uh, what was, oh, I'm curious, like, did your, did you, your publisher, you know, was there ever any question? Was there any panicked phone call or were they just like, hey, don't worry about it? You know, I, I don't want to talk too much about the you know what, what i talked about with the publisher i just say you know i'm grateful fair, for that fair they, enough they've, they've been they've been solid uh throughout all of this um yeah i mean it's sort of it's very meta it's like this is about wokeness and i was like you know it boiled in a controversy about you know sort of wokeness and related issues and the uh time leading up to it i think tyler uh cowens uh had like a two, two sentence review that i think was sort of very cryptic and alluded uh to this um yeah i think there is you know it's like is wokeness peaked or are we past wokeness it, you know it's it really, I think there's been a bifurcation. I think the universities are as bad as, uh, probably close to as bad as ever. I think there's been selection at this point. Like, even if the laws change, like, people know what the universities are. So, like, the kind of people I know who, like, you know, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, Bronze Age pervert didn't stay in the university, right? I didn't stay in the university. They selected out everybody who was not, like, a crazy person. It's basically impossible. So even if the law changed in the universities now, the people who were grad students five, ten years ago, they didn't become professors. They're doing what I'm doing or they went into private business or they did something else. So, I, you know, I think the people who I, you know, I saw most comfortable in academia and staying there, you know, they're, they're the craziest people. So I think universities are in really bad shape, even if the laws change or whatever. I just think the people that they drew um you know the people that they drew are of a certain type 
Um, now, outside of the universities, like like the so the conservative movement is something else. Like the conservative movement, I think, is really over cancellation. You could almost say it's it's you know too much depending on your uh, uh, opinion. I mean, like Nick Fuentes is you know it was hanging out with Paul Gosar, you know, a Republican congressman. <laughs> I mean, it's like almost like you know how do you get canceled and how do you get canceled as a Republican these days? I've had tons of you know conservative media, you know, they 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 just don't care. There's just a a decision that like. And it could, this could be bad because there could be people who are like genuinely crazy or, you know, there's, I think, I think conservative does have like a grifter problem and, you know, some people are, are not that great. Uh, but like, I think there's just a cultural decision of like, no, we don't care. Like liberals say something is racist. Liberals say something is sexist. Uh, you know, whatever. We're, we're not canceling anyone for that. Um, just the stuff that they say, you know, like, uh, you know, like this, the something that they say at, you know, CPAC, you know, like Charlie Kirk. I mean, if you want to like a bellwether, I mean, he said something like, be proud of being white. I mean, like he tweeted this like a couple of weeks ago and like, you are a Nazi if you said that 15 years ago, you know, quote unquote Nazi. Uh, so like people just, I mean, people, people could debate this is good, this is bad. But like, if you want to be a conservative, I mean, almost, it's almost better to be, you know, canceled. It's really, it's really uh, uh, not a problem. Now, everything else is sort of in between. So you have conservative, you know, the conservative movement going in one direction uh, you have, uh, but that's a big part of the country, right? That's people who are conservative. There's uh, universities going in the other direction. I think that, you know, the media is like, Somewhere in between, I think corporate America uh, is somewhere in between. Probably corporate America, at least, is trending in the right direction. I think at the uh, media, you know, I think that like it's probably better than it was five years ago. Uh, so yeah, I think you know that, that, that's sort of my lay of the land. You really need to like you know differentiate these things. Oh, another, just... thing, another thing is tech too. By the way, like one of the things that you know that article did was it made me seem really important because they're like you know all these big tech report guys you know like uh, you know are listening to this guy um, and just like you know the you know tech you know the tech you know just having sort of like a person like Elon Musk or Mark Andreessen just like sort of like doing stuff that like other people like the libs are gonna like flip out about I think just creates like this idea that like okay. There's like, you know, like 15 years ago, the guy, like the idea that there would be like an anti-woke, like tech model was just like sort of unthinkable. Like they were just like sort of, you know, they were either just like centrist liberals or, or whatever. Uh, today, this is, you know, this is different. I think this is, you know, this is a reaction to wokeness, just reactions to the left going crazy. People who might not have been paying attention uh, just saw how bad things were. Okay, thanks. Thanks very mm -hmm. much. Sure. Yep. Thank you for your question. And I want to just quickly add, like, if you guys see someone getting canceled or a cancellation attempt against someone you know, and it's and it seems like BS, like, you know, stand up for them, you know, um, and, you know, because when I saw them going after Richard, like, you know, I posted about it and I posted about it in the middle of my Twitter break and, you know, and just showing support, like, it really does make a difference. And, you know, just pushing back on these people because, you know, they can't just make unsubstantiated claims of bigotry, right? like, you know, like it's Hitchens razor, like that, which is asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Like, you know, don't take these claims seriously and just stand up for people. Like, I think that can also go a long way in pushing back on the cancel mobs. And then kind of on that note, I think we'll, uh, we'll start wrapping up a little bit. Um, you know, thank you everyone for your questions. And Richard, do you have any closing statements, any parting advice you would like to leave us with? Yeah. Um, do I have parting advice? <laughs> no, please buy, please buy the book. I mean, there's a lot of detail. I mean, if you're here, you really, you know, care about the topic. I mean, subscribe, you know, to my Substack. I write about uh, these issues. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, just don't don't buy don't buy into the pessimism. Don't buy into the idea. You know, it, one thing you learn from reading history, and you can get history from my book, or you can you know whatever you'll read history in other places, is that um, you know society does change in remarkable ways. And you could see how, like in my book, you could see how you know quickly some of these institutions flipped. Um, and you know, if you're old enough, if you're even if you're just like 30 years old, you could remember like how crazy it's gotten 10 years from 10 years ago. Things don't always move in one direction. I mean, there are reactionary sort of, you know, there are you know there are movements in the other direction. Um, you know, we have agency here. I mean, the idea that Twitter would be owned by uh, you know Elon Musk, you know, who you know follows both me and, and Rabbit, and you know some of you too, um, and you know is uh, you know is committed to like these controversial ideas being explored. I just you know talked one of my themes here has been about how the Republican Party, nobody wants to ever credit like the Republican Party, right? They, you know, politicians are all bums, but, you know, the, the, the anti-woke side has really made a lot of progress. Rufo's having a big impact. My ideas are having a big impact. Uh, so, yeah, stay happy, stay optimistic, and, uh, yeah, we could change things. Awesome. Thank you, Richard. And I'm going to let the space run for a few more, for a minute or two, so everybody can click on the Jumbotron link and check out Richard's book, and please give Richard a follow. Thank you, Richard, for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And remember, guys, if it, like, I, like I'm not just saying this is my self-interest to say so, but like, if you buy the book, it's like more likely that the ideas get out there. The more I, more likely that they become sort of part of the political discourse, and more likely that like more people will get canceled in the future because this guy was calling uh, from the Huffington Post was calling my publisher every day for like a week or two after this happened, and he was like so excited, and you know he ended up you know being very disappointed. Uh, so if this helped make this book a success, it's a good read. It'll you know push back against cancel culture, and will hopefully change some loss in the meantime awesome awesome all right thank you everyone for joining us and have a good night thank you Ralph.